Welcome, Jack. Hey, thanks for having me. You have an incredible podcast, man. The <laughs> Team House Podcast. How did you uh, t- tell people that are listening uh, a brief history of yourself, your life in the military, and then how you started this incredible podcast? Yeah, I'll try to sum it up. Uh, the sh- the short version. Um, you know, joined the military at age nineteen. Um, grew up in you know suburbs of New York. Uh, served in the Ranger Regiment and Special Forces, uh, eight years in the Army, deployed three times, uh, got out in 2010, went to Columbia, majored in political science, um, found my way into journalism around that point, and have been working as, you know, essentially national security journalist for uh, about 10 years now. Uh, the podcast was a, sort of a separate business endeavor, I guess you could say, but it... um you know, kind of leveraged some of those connections and, and networking that I, I did within, you know, that national security sphere. And so we interview a lot of special ops guys, a lot of spies, um, a lot of people kind of in that milieu, I guess you could say. I discovered a uh, mad dog, Jim Lawler from mm-hmm. your podcast and got, got him in here. Which Jim, is, Jim's awesome. And uh, so I'm sure that parlayed right into your writing career, your book. I just finished reading your book, Murphy's Law, which is fascinating. Yeah, thank you. Hold no, that I, thing I, up so I, people can I, see I, it. I appreciate that, you know. Uh, a little read, bit higher, like towards your face. There you go. Read by tens of people, Danny. <laughs> I, I got cheated out of a Pulitzer for this one. No, I'm just kidding. The, the The book was it was a fun experience to write it, and um, but I never really promoted or talk about it. So there, there it is. Um, if you want to hear the whole life story, what convinced you to actually write a book about your personal experiences? I, a, f- a few different things, but I mean, one of the big ones was uh, a conversation with a, a friend uh, named Jim West, who's a retired special forces warrant officer. And we were talking about Pull this thing a little bit closer. Uh, we were talking about uh, about this topic. Um, there was a, um, a publisher who was interested in having me write a book. I was hesitant about it. And I realized at a certain point, like as a writer, as a journalist, I, I call up people, I meet with people and I ask them to, you know, spill their guts and, you know, tell me in some cases, these like very, um, intimate and traumatic experiences they've been through, you know? And, uh, but at the same time, I want, I wanted to tell everyone's story except my own. And my friend Jim was like, well, yeah, that's, that's the PTSD speaking right there. Like, you know, you're, you're afraid of talking about your own past. And at that point it's kind of like, fuck you're not wrong, you know? And, and at that point it becomes like this thing, like I kind of have to confront that and go through that and, mm. and, and actually tell, you know, my piece of it. What was that like confronting that and going through it yourself? Was it, was it helpful? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it, it was a good experience to um, go back and write about all of that and kind of, it, it's like sort of formatting your own life and your own experiences and kind of figuring out where to place all of that and what it means. And, and in a lot of cases also going back and talking to old teammates and friends and, and, um, and I don't want to say rehashing, you know, but to go back and say, Hey, do you remember that thing that happened? Like, how do you remember it? What was that like? And kind of getting these other perspectives and, and kind of, um, it, it was a, an interesting, you know, kind of revisiting of the past. Mm. So when you first joined the military, can you explain what that was like and like what you had? My audio sounds weird. Is it, does it look okay on there? Yeah, it looks Maybe it's just my headphones. Um, when you first joined the military, like what branch of the military did you first join and like, how did that evolve? Like, where did you go? Cause you explained that initially, I think you wanted to be a sniper. Is that right? Uh, well, actually, initially I looked, uh, at the Marine Corps and, okay. uh, like a lot of people, the Marine Corps recruiters, um, 
try to play hardball and, you know, people end up going and looking elsewhere. And I was one of those people, uh, went down the hall to the army and I, I enlisted on a, uh, it was called an option 40. It's a ranger contract, which, you know, it guarantees you the opportunity to try out for the ranger regiment. Mm. So go to basic training, airborne school, and then what was known at that time, rip, uh, the ranger indoctrination program. And if you graduate, then you get assigned to one of the three ranger battalions. Rangers are like, that's one of the most hardcore things you can get into as being a ranger. Yeah, right? yeah. It's a uh, airborne light infantry unit. Uh, it was an interesting period when I got there. It was 2003 when I got to Ranger Battalion that summer. Oh, wow. It was right after the guys were just coming back from Iraq, uh, the invasion. And um, the unit was going through this interesting sort of cultural shift from being a sort of light infantry unit uh, with its sort of um, origins uh, still very much, I think, rooted in the Vietnam conflict um, with this idea of, of patrolling in the woods and doing patrol-based activities and uh, doing raids and things like this. It was transitioning to becoming more of like a counterterrorism unit uh, that could do these strike operations and hunting high-value targets. And so there's, there's like this interesting cultural transition that was taking place. Like when I first got there, we had the uh, LCE and, you know, your load carrying equipment, which is pretty much the same stuff the guys wore in Vietnam. And there are these meticulous tie down standards that you have to tie every pouch down and burn the ends of the 550 cord and make it all look like, you know, dress right dress. But then that thing gets hung up in the wall locker and never used. It's like vestigial of the past. And we yeah. have all this new kit that's coming in for the war on terror that we're actually using. So it was an interesting, I think, trans uh, transitional period for for the Ranger Regiment. How old were you the first time you got deployed overseas, over to the Middle East? First time I was deployed, I think I was 21, as I recall, okay. to Afghanistan. Okay. And what was, uh like, what were the type of things that you were doing over there? Like, what was... uh. Were you, at what point did you become a sniper? I was, I was a sniper on that deployment, okay. my first deployment overseas. Uh, that was, again, it was a, sort of an interesting period in Afghanistan. The invasion had taken place, um, but the insurgency had not really kicked into high gear. Uh, so it was this sort of like in-between period. So this was after they kicked out the bath party? This is Afghanistan. Afghanistan, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, it was after, you know, uh, the Taliban had been... Uh, defeated as far as a governmental entity and no longer existed right bin laden and a lot of the al-qaeda guys fled across the border to pakistan okay um there were there were taliban holdouts um there were people who had gone into hiding but there wasn't really a organized resistance to the american occupation at that time um but we we still stayed busy i mean we did you know i think a few dozen raids while we were in country um, but it wasn't, you know, probably like what guys experienced later on, you know, the Marines and the Rangers and everyone else who was over there when that insurgency really got uh, hot. How, yeah. What happened after that? What happened? And can you explain like what sort of transpired and, and how the insurgency really like started to, de to develop out there? Well, yeah, I mean, I wasn't there. That, that was my one trip to Afghanistan, but I mean, the Taliban was able to reorganize and constitute a armed resistance to the United States. Mm. And, um, you know, clearly the the people of that country uh, chose the Taliban over, you know, whatever America was offering. Reading your book, one of the most eye-opening things about your book to me was when you explained like life, you said death seemed meaningless to you. 
like death didn't mean anything and and life you said you said there was nothing special or spiritual about it you, you think that it was just like life and death was just a thing like once you're dead then that's it you're forgotten right. about it. it's just black right. it's curtains yeah well i mean i think as a soldier like you go about doing your job and a lot of people don't understand that that it is a job it's an occupation and you get on with it right you see it as a as a job that you you check into work you do you know your tasks and you know you can rest when when the mission's over um, you know, I think what the part of the book you're referencing is when we killed a terrorist, he was uh, squirting off an objective, meaning he was trying to escape. He wasn't surrendering. He was trying to run away. And uh, our rules of engagement authorized us to kill people who are just trying terrorists who are trying to run away. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did. And we brought his body back to the uh, to the base. And I just remember looking at him. I, I had actually watched this guy die. Is this the guy that was running away? Yeah. And the entire task force opened fire on him. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so this guy's corpse, I, I mean, I watched the guy sh- be shot and killed and then his corpse, you know, was there a- outside our, uh, our, our, you know, operations center and, um, you know, just riddled with bullets and, you know, flies crawling across his face and looking at him. It's just it, that experience hits you like this guy was a, a human being. He was a bad person, but he was a living human being. And then we made him a dead human being. Mm-hmm. And that that sort of thread between life and death, you can sort of... um. I, I guess sort of the sanctity that we tend to apply to human life um, here in America or, you know, the Western world or I mean, even then it's too much. I mean, there, there's people in other cultures who apply the sanctity of life. I should say in a war zone, that sanctity, I think, disappears rather quickly, it mm. evaporates into thin air. Yeah, that's it's, it's so interesting to see that perspective. I was just listening to uh, Joby Warwick talk on a podcast my friend Julian did and he was explaining a situation where he saw a house get raided and a guy got put like the father of of somebody got put on the ground they put his hands behind his head and they tied him up and the guy's son the guy's like 11 year old son came out and didn't know what was going on and he just came down with no one talking to him or anything came outside and just laid down next to his father with his hands behind his back where was this i want to say it was in afghanistan oh man or iraq so somewhere out there in the middle east and that, that that hit me. That hit me hard. Like the perspective of those people and how they grew up like that. And how they yeah. grew up like that. And that's another mm-hmm. thing that you mentioned in your book that hit me hard was you explain how the people who live out there and the people when you compare them to the people that live out here, it's like two different species evolving on separate timelines. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I you're absolutely right that um I, I don't want to make that sound like some sort of like pejorative or, or like racial, you know, uh prejudiced argument. No, it didn't seem that um, way at all. Yeah, yeah. The way I, I mean it I mean it's a it's an issue of poverty yeah. and the extreme poverty that these people live in and that their lives are so different than ours that yeah, it feels like we're we're like almost different species on, on different kind of tracks, right? Mm. Um the, one of the um moments that's kind of burned into my memory that I bring up in the book was driving down the road. Um, I think I believe it was um, it was around the outskirts of Missoul, and there was this pothole in the road. And when I say a pothole, I mean it was like the size of a semi truck. It was this like huge hole in the ground, just filled with like putrid black water. And there were two little kids in the water, like five years old, splashing each other. Oh. And it's like we're we're not we ain't in Kansas anymore, <laughs> you know. Uh, another another Iraq incident was when. Um, I set my rifle down um, against the vehicle 
to take my body armor off or take my, I think maybe to take some cold weather gear off. And this little kid made a beeline for my rifle. And I was like, Oh, that's not good. And I kind of reached over and I scooped him up before he could get to it. And I used to babysit kids when I was a teenager, when I was in high school. And, um, so I know how much like a, a five, six year old kid is supposed to weigh. <laughs> right. I picked this kid up and he's like a feather in my arms. He doesn't weigh anything. And they're, they're severely malnourished out in this remote village in, in Western Iraq. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, the way of life is so different. Uh, it, it's, it's uh, in Afghanistan also going into some of these remote valleys. It, it really does feel like you're on another planet. I was almost like I was almost brought to tears reading the part two where you said you were in a, a house that you had raided and there was a disabled kid in the closet, yeah. locked in the closet, yeah, yeah. and somebody fed him an apple or something. One of our teammates gave him an apple and he ate the whole thing, like stem and all. Yeah, there is a kid that uh, they had. I mean, he was a, a mentally disabled child and they had him locked in a closet. Um, if you are suffering any kind of disability in a country like Iraq or Afghanistan, like you are beyond fucked. Like it's impossible to even comprehend. Uh, you know, people like we, we tend to call them now little people uh, in, in the United States. <laughs> Midgets. <laughs> Midgets uh, in, in, in Iraq. You know, it's funny. I've met, side note, I've met so many of them, especially the ones that uh, have the, I think, I don't know, it must be a Florida thing, but there's like a bunch of uh, midget wrestling uh, <laughs> really? like groups here. Like uh, there's a midget wrestling league and we talked to them. <laughs> and I'm like, do you guys like being called little people? Like, no, we like being called midgets. Call us what we are. <laughs> well, the, the, these folks are like, I, they, um, they're, they're like used as like T boys in, in Iraq. And, uh, the, um, the people there say, you know, these, these midgets are quote unquote crazy. They're crazy people. And so they're treated as like subhuman. And I, I've seen like, People just like going up to them, slapping them around and beating the shit out of them. Are there lots of them over there? And not a lot, but they, but they're they're, they're around. Yeah, um, you know stories in in Afghanistan, people who are crippled, and you know the they'll just get left on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere to panhandle. Oh, God, dude. Um, yeah, it's it's the stuff that happens to adults over there. Um, especially to children is just so it's just really terrible. And I, I have to also caveat some of this. I have a, a jaundiced perspective from being there as a soldier and um, being there during a war. Uh, if you talk to somebody from who is Afghan or Iraqi and grew up there in that culture, they can they can explain some of the other aspects of the culture and some of the you know the beauty and, and things of that 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 I I have no doubt exist. Um, so I'm very much coming from a soldier's perspective uh, mm. and an outsider's perspective. Mm. Yeah. What what when you came back, um, and you sort of like left the military. What was your perspective like? Hindsight, looking on like our pretext for going into Iraq and and all of you know similar to like the work you're doing now you're, the mm -hmm, work you're doing now mm -hmm. the journalism you're doing now is kind of like calling out the bullshit that's going on when you first kind of discovered some of that stuff that the united states was doing going in there and what was your perspective on that and how did you take that yeah you know i i was telling you earlier you know uh no one really lives a life of empiricism it's it's too painful to live like that. No one lives in a totally fact-based world all the time. Mm. Um, we all have little stories that we tell ourselves to a certain extent. Soldiers tell themselves little stories to make sense of them being in what is a profoundly insane environment. I mean, being in war is, it's not 
normal per se. Um, you're seeing insane things every day. You have to have some sort of a way to rationalize that and explain it. Uh, I remember my teammates and I having conversations and talking about, you know, maybe the way we got into this conflict was wrong, but we're trying to make the best of it and try to build this country up into something, you know, and try to help these people now. And I think that was the story we sort of told ourselves. For me personally, by the time, you know, 2009, 2010, um, I was very um, disenchanted with how the war was being prosecuted. Uh, I didn't believe that we were taking it seriously. And uh, I made the decision to get out of the military. You know, as, as a friend of mine says, you know, we got out during the halftime show. We punched out and left um, halfway through the war. Um, and yeah, as, as time goes on, uh, like a lot of veterans, and I can't speak for other veterans, but I think a lot of us come out of the military for various reasons being pretty angry about what we experienced and what we went through. Yeah. And then as an individual on your own, you're sort of left to figure out what that experience means. Uh, what, what was that? When, when you look back on it, on these things, it seems like a fever dream. When, when you look back and you think about, you know, a firefight that uh, under night vision goggles, um, you think about, you know, a valley you drove through and you see the, a, a woman in Afghanistan washing plates in the river. Um or, or the kids splashing each other in the in the putrid black water, it, it seems sort of like a dream. Like, did that really happen? Uh, you know, and some of those things that almost killed you as well. Um, it's got to be gut-wrenching to see kids in those situations, especially it, it, when you have kids. It, it, I didn't have children at oh, the time, okay. but it, it still was. It, it was. it was still tough. I mean, it's... The, the stuff with the kids is always that with the things that fuck people up the worst. Um, and, and, you know, the collateral damage leads to, you know, the, the post-traumatic stress that guys um, have. It's not from killing the enemy in combat. I, I don't think that really bothers, you know, infantrymen uh, so much. You know, killing armed enemy is one thing. But, you know, when you see civilians caught up, it's different. Um, so, yeah, when, when guys leave the military, they're sort of left to their own devices to t try to figure out what that experience meant. And I think that, you know, as a group, we're all still struggling with it. We're all trying to figure it out, especially mm -hmm. what happened in Afghanistan uh, with a botched withdrawal. Um, a lot of guys are trying to piece together what that means. I want to go I want to go deep into into that stuff and like what it's like dealing with life after the military and finding meaning and stuff. But real quick, I want to just make sure I cover one one thing, another thing that mm -hmm. stuck out to me about your book. I feel like perspective on people over there is so important, especially when it comes to like, so the way you laid it out in your book was like, you said, imagine if China came to the United States and put boots on the ground <laughs> yeah. to come help us out in some conflict and started just raiding houses and, and dragging people's families out and executing them. If somebody did that to your house and killed your mom and dad or, or your kids, it's highly likely that you would be waiting at a bridge with an IED to blow up a fucking yeah, Chinese not, tank, it, too. It doesn't even have to be like a, like Waffen-SS-type war atrocities, right? What if a foreign army came here and they were doing the same sort of things we do that we're trying to target a terrorist network, right? but sometimes we fuck it up? Mm -hmm. Right. We blow down the wrong door. We kill the wrong person. And, you know, your uncle gets beaten up and drag, dragged to prison for five days. You know, your cousin gets killed because, you know, the, the, this army occupying army hit the wrong house, hit the wrong, like their mistakes. Most right. Of the time. Mistakes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Things, ha you know, shit happens, collateral damage. Yeah. And then how do you, how, how is that going to affect you? Um, are you more or less likely to join an insurgency at that right. point? And, you know, I think what, what I'm trying to get at there is, with these wars, these counterinsurgencies in Iraq and Afghanistan, there's a lot of reasons um, 
we're looking at, um, our, that our government is looking at. There's a whole commission on Afghanistan, congressional committee that's starting up to look at like, how did we fuck this up? What did we do wrong? And there's a lot of reasons and a lot of finger pointing. Um, but very, there's very little talk about the local populations fundamentally rejecting our proposition, uh, that they fundamentally rejected any sort of foreign imposition. That they did not want foreign personnel, foreign military, foreign soldiers walking around their streets and and you know essentially telling them what to do. They rejected that premise, and it was just unacceptable to them. And so we can look at these wars and say, oh man, if we had just like tactically done this instead of that, if our strategy had been you know we had better interoperability, like you can turn it into this intellectual thought problem that if only we had moved the chess pieces around differently, we could have won the war. Um, other people will try to blame the media. You know, if it wasn't for the for the liberal media, we would have won the war. But when we, we we talk about it, all of these things, we fundamentally miss the fact that the local populations in these countries just did not want us there and would not accept us there. A lot of people just think that the that culture and people of Islam are just evil and that the Quran just teaches them to kill Christians. <laughs> and I just had this guy on this podcast a couple of days ago, this guy, Beck Lover, who's from uh, – he's from uh, Kosovo or mm-hmm. Albania. Yeah. And uh, he was talking, he was educating me a lot on that religion. And basically, it's the the most closest religion to Christianity, from what he was saying, and the way, like the way that they teach it. And just because there's a couple guys in a cave that are doing some evil shit, does not mean you can classify however many billions of people. I think the biggest, I, the number two religion in the world is I, I think there's a billion Muslims in the world, right. worldwide. Um, it's a huge population and, you know, the vast majority of them are not engaged in terrorist activities. Right. And so, yeah, we don't want to demonize those, you know, ordinary people going about their lives. Uh, there is a, and has been for the last, you know, 20, 30 years, a growing we could call it Islam, Islamic nationalist movement, um, a, a movement for political Islam in some countries. Um, but you know what? What mostly concerns us is not sort of like you know the sort of politics we see in Egypt or or even necessarily Afghanistan. You could argue, um, but it's more of the jihadi Salafist right. brand of Islam um, that tends to be you know violent and interested in particularly doing terrorist operations. And and that's, mm. you know, what our chief concern is. So when you got back to the United States, what, what, what was it like when you got back and you kind of, how long did it take you to retire from the military? Did you stay enlisted for a while? Were you, what were you doing when you came back? Uh, you mean like in between deployments or after I left the military? Like after you, like when, when you, how many deployments did you do in the first place? Three. You did three yeah. deployments. So like when you were done with your deployments, did you stay here in the U.S. before you retired or or like how did you transition into civilian life and journalism? Uh, yeah. So I came back from a deployment to Iraq in 2009 and got out of the military in 2010. Um, didn't have a whole lot of a plan, which is a bad idea. You know, anybody who's transitioning out of the military, have a plan when you get out. Um, I uh, got out and went to, uh, I went back home. Uh, I spent that mandatory like two or three months in my mom's basement playing video games. I uh, got, um, you know, signed up for college. I did my first year of school at a, at a school called Mercy in Dobbs Ferry. And then um, 
applied to Columbia and transferred over there, did the last three years of my undergrad and got my BA. So while I was in college, I mean, the the post 9-11 GI Bill is a great thing, and it provides the sort of buffer to transition as well in the civilian world. What is that bill? It's a, a... the the post 9-11 GI Bill is a bill that will pay for a veteran to go to college, um, and it'll also pay a housing allowance. So it's sort of like all of your expenses are paid. Even even There's even a, a book allowance to buy college textbooks. So, I mean, it, it's a very soft cushion uh, for a guy or a woman coming out of the military after four years or, or longer. Um, to make use of that GI Bill. And, and you have those sort of four years to transition into civilian life, get yourself a degree and find a new job. Mm. Um, and while I was in school, I was a part of a startup company, a startup uh, news, military news website. And, you know, when I did that, I suddenly found myself uh, in this position where, okay, now I have to write news. <laughs> uh, so I kind of fell into it. And uh, what what the follow-on thought to that was, well, I can't just sit around and tell war stories about, yeah, this is what Iraq was like in 2005. Right. Who cares? Um, so I started making trips overseas um, to do reporting from Iraq, Syria. Uh, I even made trips to the Philippines, Switzerland, uh, South Korea, uh, some, some interesting stuff. What was that like, man? Going, it was fun. Going from being over there in these countries actually like fighting a war to being over there working on your own projects your own journalistic endeavors it was it was so much fun uh it, it was such a great time no one was telling me what to do i did exactly what i wanted to do the way i felt it should be done uh the the trade off to that i mean some of these experiences were very safe i mean south korea switzerland like it doesn't really get more safe than that right, right? um but some of the t- uh, stuff going to iraq and syria um, the trade-off uh, to doing this stuff as an independent journalist is that there's no uh, airstrikes on call. There's no helicopters coming to pick you up. Uh, there's no if you get shot. There's no you know highly trained ranger medic coming to you know plug the wounds and get you into a sketco like a stretcher and evacuate you. You don't have any of that. So you're really out there. I was really out there flapping in, in some instances, and that's sort of the trade off. You know, you're you're living your life the way that you choose and and living by your wits, and it's very exciting. Um, but <laughs> as we were, we were talking about over lunch, I did get to a point with it where I was like, yeah, if I keep doing this, it's going to kill me. Yeah. Did you, I talked to, uh, I've talked to another guy on here, um, Ryan Tate. He was explained to me that he, when he got out of the Marines, he was just experiencing this, like this, like hyper alertness, this hyper vigilance everywhere, yeah. he, everywhere he Threats went, everywhere. looking over his shoulder, just like hyper alert of everything was you were you experiencing something like that at all is that kind of is that sort of what helped you decide or made you decide to go back over there and experience that kind of like you're still even though you're doing journalism you're still gambling with life or death situations Uh, absolutely addicted to the adrenaline high of war um i I think i the term i used in the book was that war is intoxicating Mm, and it, it absolutely is um I never experienced sort of like that, um, like hypervigilance or like flashbacks, you know, people like sort of symptoms you hear about PTSD. 
uh, when I look back on it, what I realized with exactly this, with what I was doing with these trips overseas, was that I was so addicted to the adrenaline and working in this high-stress environment. What I was doing was I was artificially creating this same high-stress environment or an even more stressful environment in my civilian life. So I was doing these reporting trips. I was working full-time writing news stories. I was writing novels. I was a full-time student at an Ivy League university. I was a new father. Holy shit. I mean, shit. I, was, I was basically... I was traveling all over the city. I was having every minute I was having phone calls. I was doing news spots, going going downtown to do news shows, um, traveling around the country to do other things. I mean, I was I, I, subconsciously I was doing this. I was working myself to death because I was just riding that chronic like adrenaline spike every day. And it caught up with me. You know, it definitely caught up with me. Uh, I literally hit the pavement. I was like so stressed out. Like I, I actually passed out on the way to school one morning. Wow. Yeah, on 112th Street. And that was the first wake-up call that like something's got to give. But to be perfectly honest, I mean, I was in the Army for eight years. I would say it took about eight years for me to fully like detox <laughs> out of that out of that wow. mindset. Yeah. And, you know, find some hobbies, some things that I can do just for me. Um, they have nothing to do with, you know, all this, all this insane war stuff. Um you know, be a, a a dad in a different sort of way, be present in a, in a different sort of way. Mm. And that, that took, that took a long time for me, honestly. Yeah, man. I, like finding meaning seems to be the, the one yeah. common denominator for people like veterans when yeah. they get out of those, yeah. those highly, highly stressful yeah. situations overseas, like coming back and like finding something that actually something to do that like is bigger than yourself, like leave something behind, leave a legacy, like create something bigger than yourself. In, in, in war and as a soldier or a Marine in the military, I mean, when you're at war, everything you do is so important. Exactly. It's so important. Like if, if you don't do it the right way, yes. someone could get killed. It could be you. It could be your friend. The mission could fail. Uh, it, everything has this immediacy to it. Right. Uh, and then when you, when you get into the civilian world, uh, you know, it, it's obviously totally different and it's, it's, uh, much more laid back and that creates this sort of like cultural schism between, mm -hmm. uh, between the veteran and their own culture. And it, and it takes, it, it takes some time to reconcile that. You said you went to Syria, right? For a while. You went to Syria at one point. A couple times. Yeah. A couple times reporting on what, what exactly were you, were you reporting on in Syria? And then did you, did you have to find somebody to like to go with you everywhere to translate and um, what do they call it a fixer or something? Yeah. I, I have used fixers in the past for, for limited things, um, like translation. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole insane story there, but I mean, the first time I, I went, I was smuggled into North, uh, Northeastern Syria, uh, did a, 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 a border crossing that may not have been strictly legal and uh, was hanging out with the Kurdish YPG and YPJ militia in Syria. Um, that was just a absolutely fascinating experience. And then the second time uh, I was um, invited to Damascus. And so I was actually hanging out with the Syrian regime. So where, uh, for somebody who um, I don't know anything about the, the geography of that mm -hmm. area, where is Damascus? Damascus is like central south central Syria I guess you could say it's the capital city of okay okay of Syria okay so and then what were you doing there like what kind of situations did you find yourself in and and who what kind of people were you talking to 
Yeah, it was a, it was an interesting moment in history where the Assad government was attempting to um, institute this policy of new openness. That you know we want to we we're, you know we're the good guys. You know we're bringing you know we're going to let in all these Western journalists. They bust us in. I got invited to this thing. Uh, this event. And they, they literally, it was like a couple busloads of journalists and we were bussed in for this conference um, in Damascus. And while we were in Damascus, we had opportunities, you know, to go walk around the streets of Damascus. Um, we had opportunities to put in media requests to go and interview people. And that didn't go very well. But, um, you know, I, I interviewed, you know, I was there in uh, in an interview uh, in the room with President Assad at one point. Oh, wow. Um, it, it was a fascinating experience. It was, I, I was actually thinking about this the other day about the conference itself, where it is the, the, the government, the regime is putting people in front of you that they want you to hear their perspectives, right? That they're, they're speaking at this conference. And when I look back on it, what strikes me is that we were hearing from a Syrian uh, a, a, an elite class of people in Damascus who are profoundly out of touch with their own country. <laughs> yeah. It, it was, it, when I, when I think back to it, there's things that just make me chuckle. Like I remember the question of like the, the oppression of the Kurdish population in Syria came up at one point and there was a Syrian woman who was a speaker there. And she said, my last name sounds Kurdish. It sounds very Kurdish. It's, this has never been a problem. I've never been discriminated against. Like, it was just completely out of touch with, with the people, the Kurdish people in Syria who could not you know, own a passport, could not speak their language, could not lawfully have a job. I mean, it was just insane, just total insanity. Wow. Can you give uh, like some brief context to like what the geographical situation was in Syria at that point in time and what, like, what year was that and like what was going on? Where, what was ISIS doing at that point? Oh my God! Uh, so, what year was was this? Twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen? Uh, I'd have to go back and, and look myself. Um, the, I mean, the situation was extremely complicated. Uh, there were ISIS was definitely in full force. Um, the battle for Aleppo was taking place around this time frame, um, or or had just concluded. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the the uh, the Kurds in the the YPG and, and YPJ and what eventually became SDF was active in in the northeastern part of the country. Uh, you had a small American garrison in Al Tanif down in southern Syria, um, but I mean there was still like FSA like notional you know Free Syrian Army El Nusra was still all over the place. I mean it, it was total chaos. I mean there was still um, areas outside Damascus that were controlled by militias. Um, what was happening at that time frame was that the, um, the regime was kind of like cutting deals with these different militias that controlled different sectors, like come back into the fold and you'll get some sort of amnesty. So it was like it's crazy civil yeah, war. It, it was like the city is controlled by the government, but not really. Like, mm-hmm. as I came to find out, like, as you go into these different sectors, actually a militia commander has more say over what happens than mm-hmm. say the ministry of defense. How confident were you? Like, 
I can imagine myself being in that situation. I would first of all, I wouldn't fucking go. Second, like second of all, if I was there, I would be fucking terrified after <laughs> watching videos of ISIS fucking saw heads off people and journalists and and just like innocent people. Like, how confident were you, like, from your army being in the being being in the military and and being deployed and like in combat? Like, you were armed, obviously. Like, I, I was not armed on this trip. You as, were not as, armed. No, okay. as a, as a journalist, I was never armed. No. So how? scared were you or were you not scared uh, like encountering isis uh on this trip i was not scared of that at all because i mean we were in a city that you know especially the central part of damascus is controlled by the the government we were there at the government's invitation on on a u.s passport so it it was all very legit uh, and above board in that sense um we uh yeah yeah no i i didn't have any real safety concerns i mean there were still like mortars landing in in the city sometimes but nothing too serious the um the other the first trip i made to syria was actually like pretty sketchy <laughs> especially getting in and out that's the one where you like cross the river yeah. or whatever and you had to like yeah <laughs> you yeah. were in the car you explained you were in the car some guy was driving and he what was he saying he was saying uh no syria no syria or something that was on the way back on the way so back don't say you went to syria <laughs> we we couldn't get across um the border the way we came taking a little inflatable raft across the river so um instead the the plan that was concocted was that we would have to cross the border on foot and there are these huge dirt berms that are the demarcation line between syria and iraq that must have been pressed up there with with bulldozers there because they're like 30 feet high and in the night, scrambling over this dirt berm, coming down on the other side and walking through the mud for a few miles into a village. And there's a driver that meets on the other side, flashes his head la- headlights of his car. And now this poor guy who's been tasked to do this has to drive us through all these checkpoints. And yeah, he's the one looking at us. No Syria, no Syria. I think that was the only English he spoke. <laughs> now, when you're when you're doing this stuff, are, are do you are you are, like do you have cameras and are you taking photos? Are you taking video? Or are you just simply just rep- like taking notes? I, I think, uh, during the actual border crossing, I I did take a few pictures and I did have a camera. Yeah. Um, but I was not, I was more focused on trying to not die at that particular moment than, than yeah, chronicling it. I've heard descriptions from journalists that have been in like the middle, I think it was a vice journalist. I forget who, maybe it was a BBC journalist, but it, it was explaining like being in the middle of a firefight over there and being like behind a berm with a video camera. And he's saying like, he's so lost in just getting the shot, getting that clip. I can see that. He just forgets about bullets flying over his head, like forgets that he's like, if he stands up, he's dead because he's so focused on getting this incredible fucking shot of these guys in a firefight. Well, remember what we were saying about soldiers, that it's a job, it's an occupation. Right. Being being a videographer, video journalist, he has a job and he's doing his job and he's not yeah. really thinking about all these other things that he probably should be thinking about. Right. Right. <laughs> right. It's just crazy to hear that. Like, yeah, there was a there was a group of journalists. Uh, they may have been BBC, actually, who got um they got trapped behind enemy lines in Mosul. Like they got, you know, encircled by ISIS at one point. Yeah. That's some sketchy shit. What happened to them? They 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 were able to um, break through and get out. I, I they may have done some. I, I can't remember the whole story. I'm going to tell it wrong. Mm. Um, I, I had nothing to do with it. Of course, they may have done some airstrikes to help them get out. Oh, okay. um, but but they were able to escape. 
So when you started, you got back and you started doing this stuff and you started, you started reporting on some of the things that were happening. What, what was like, was there a big break for you? Like a big, a big breakthrough you had in journalism where you're like, no, okay. No, no big break. I mean, it was just sort of consistent work, uh, writing daily. Sometimes, you know, writing about things that are, you know, maybe rather mundane. You know, these are changes to the military. This is what's happening. Some of them are quite explosive stories. Uh, I've written about, I know all this covert ops stuff, but I mean, I've also written about, you know, all this other stuff that affects soldiers, sexual assault, domestic violence, suicides, murders, missing persons. I mean, I've covered all of this stuff at, at varying times. Um, and they're, they're, they're tough stories, but yeah, no big break. Um, you know, at the time, so this news website I was a part of, um, I left there years ago, but we, uh, it, it was a special operations focused website and um in 2012 nothing like that existed it, it was a different um it was a different era now all these special ops guys are on instagram posting deployment pictures <laughs> they all <have> podcasts <laughs> i'm not uh, yeah I, I mean i do who am i to speak right um that's fascinating man it, it, i'm it, glad it, they all have podcasts I, I i agree with you um but the, the only point i'm trying to make is that in 2012 things were different mm -hmm. um no one was doing this yet and so this was like very controversial and for the special ops community and for um for the military in general to a certain extent like you're talking publicly about all these things like you can't do that right. um and now here we are fast forward 10 years we're just in a different world and yeah. you know a different generation um so it, it was definitely interesting i mean i would say for a time it was groundbreaking and it was a fun job until it wasn't <laughs> and um I, i've since moved on to to other endeavors where i write for different outlets isn't it interesting how kind of like guys like you and a, a lot of guys and i don't know how i'm 35 how old are you i'm 39 39 so like guys in our age bracket or even a little older they're they're coming out now they have they're going on podcasts they're talking about their stories they're writing books they're much more open but then you'll see a lot of older guys like jim lawler's age he's an exception but a lot of like agency guys or military guys that they just don't want to talk about things yes the the military guys the special forces guys and like on one hand i, I really respect them um i respect their professionalism but because when they were in decades ago like this stuff was super secret it was classified and so they're maintaining, you know, like the the sort of informal motto of special forces is, you know, the quiet professionals. So, and and I and I have the utmost respect for that. Uh, however, a lot of this stuff is no longer secret. It's been declassified. Mm -hmm. It's not sensitive anymore. There's a lot of things. Even when when something is classified, there's still ways you can talk about certain things without getting too deep into the weeds, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's it is frustrating sometimes. Uh, I'll give you an example. I went down to uh, a Detachment A uh, reunion, uh, Special Forces Detachment A. What does that mean, Detachment A? They were they were a specialized unit um, stationed in Berlin during the Cold War, and these guys were they did amazing stuff. They they wore civilian clothes. They spoke German. They lived off the local economy. They built up their own cover identities, and their oh, wow. their job was if the Soviet Union invaded, they would go to ground, hide out in their safe houses. And when the Soviet lines passed over them, they would activate and they would begin conducting acts of sabotage and espionage. This is what you call sleeper cells, right? Right. <sighs> and this, this, this is the good stuff. And so Detachment A existed from, uh, geez, from the fifth, late 50s, I think. Uh, and I have to check my own research uh, until 1984. And then it became another unit called PSSE. That existed until uh, 
I think like 93 or something like this. And I apologize if my dates aren't quite uh, up to snuff. But mm. the point I'm making is I went to this reunion to interview these guys. Now, now a lot of this stuff is declassified. A lot of this stuff is declassified now. So I went to this reunion. I was invited to come and interview these guys. And some of them, I got them on camera and they were telling their whole story and it was amazing. There were some guys who were telling their story and they're like, it feels so strange to talk about this because for like 35 years, I didn't tell my like wife and kids about this. And here they are saying it on camera. Um, and then there were some guys, I put them on camera and they gave me the unit's cover story and nothing else. <laughs> they walked out. Oh they still were not God. willing to talk about it. And, uh, you know, uh, that's, that's another thing as a journalist. I mean, nobody owes me anything. Nobody owes me an interview. Nobody has to talk to me. I, I ask nicely and, um, you know, I hope that people trust me to, you know, tell the real story and, um, you build that trust and, you know, you, you have to kind of build that up. And, uh, so, I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is, yeah, I mean, people just do that because they're nice and they're, they're trying to do you a solid and you, you, you definitely uh, have to understand that some people don't want to talk. So that's a perfect lead in to this recent CIA story. I feel like we could spend a whole hour yeah. talking about this recent story that you just released just like a week ago, maybe two weeks ago about <clears throat> the CIA espionage that's going on in Russia and Ukraine right now. Mm -hmm. How did this story, how, how did this story come across your desk and how did you get interested in this and what made you want to report yeah. this? No, that's a great question. So I, uh, it first came up on my radar, honestly, was uh, just me watching the news and what was happening, um, things that were in social media. And right as the invasion kicked off, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine kicked off, what, in February, all, like almost immediately, there was this whole rash of like mysterious fires. There were things blowing up in Russia. Um, there was like an aerospace defense building that burned to the ground. There was... Uh, fuel depots going up in flames. There was um, there there was like uh, ammunition depots. Uh, you, you saw all of these things that were what I was looking at, and what I immediately recognized in my mind is there is a target selection criteria that is being worked down. It's like straight out of like a, a special forces unconventional warfare manual. This a, it's a classic sabotage campaign. And you saw reports of these things happening. Yeah, and, and it's, instantly... it openly, openly in, in social media because people are like, oh, something's burning in Russia again. Look at this. You know, here here goes, uh, you know, train, train tracks got blown up today. Fuel depot got blown up today. Warehouse housing, you know, Russian propaganda caught on fire today. And that happened so quickly. Uh, it was very clear to me that this was done by people who had pre-planned these targets. They had done a reconnaissance, targeting reconnaissance ahead of time, that there were teams on the ground doing this, and that this was an intelligence. There was a intelligence behind this organization pulling the puppet strings. And I, I don't know who is doing that. I, I, I truly did not. Um, but... I could see that there is something there, right? And I don't think it takes any genius to put two and two together. And I certainly was not the only person that realized that. I think a lot of people, they didn't not they didn't know specifically, but a lot of people were like, wink, wink, nod, nod. Um, and as time went on, even the Ukrainian government would give the wink, wink, nod, nod. Like, man, they really got to work on their, uh, you know, be careful flicking out cigarettes in these military warehouses and things like that, you know? So who was reporting on these fires or these explosions or these train tracks blowing up? 
up. I think there was like a munitions warehouse that caught on fire. Like where, where was very, very little. I mean, it was mostly social media stuff, but uh, there was one story in the Washington Post, um, not about Russia, but in Belarus. Uh, again, just as the invasion was popping off uh, rail line sabotage. Um, and the group that was behind that. And so that, that little, um, arm of it was, was exposed. Um, but I could see all these things happening in Russia as well. And so I started asking questions and I started going to sources and I, I, I really believed if we had anything to do with this, if America had anything to do with this, this is one of those things that's like deeply classified. I'm not going to hear about it for 20 years, but before long, I started having some conversations that really shocked me. Uh, that I was surprised by that we would, that I started finding some answers and we, when you find, when you're dealing in the world of covert operations and when you finally find the, the, the right people who know what you're asking about, um, and this thing that in your mind is this huge story, but you talk to them and again, it goes back to, it's a job, it's an occupation, right? And when you lay this on them, they just shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, we did that fuck of it mm-hmm. like like they don't really think too much of i mean it's a big deal but they don't see it in the same context that an outsider sees it because they're doing their job right they're read into it it's not surprising to them when you see reports like this though like like reports of these things happening over there in the u.s media and social media do you are you like one of those people who goes to like russian media and looks at what the russians are reporting yes a little bit um because i needed to understand how what the russian interpretation was of it and what they were putting out in their in the russian media and they were they were writing these things off pretty much as all accidental fires you know and, where, and what what is like where do you go to find out like what the what the russian narrative uh, well I, I am not, i am not a russian speaker or or reader uh so i um i actually um spoke to a woman named olga lotman uh who is and she she has a, a pretty deep knowledge of, oh yeah you uh, linked to her in this article I yes think I found her Twitter, yeah she's yeah. she's quoted in the article so yeah um i i need to talk to actual experts in some areas to kind right. of plug these knowledge gaps yeah okay so uh right so so you so you're following up on these reports of these things that you think that you see and you say instantly yeah this is textbook sabotage. Yeah. And what where do you go from there? Who do you start talking to? How do you develop sources that actually have knowledge of these things going on? Yeah, I mean I can't really discuss anonymous sources of course. Um I'll just say that this story was difficult to report on. It it was challenging. Um I worked on this from you know, about April to, you know, pretty, pretty much like when I published it and I published it on Christmas Eve. Um, so it, it took quite a long time. There's a whole journey. There's a whole backstory that this article took with numerous publications. Um, and it, it was definitely an uphill battle. And th- this, this was probably the most, eh, I, I don't know. I, it, no, it's not the most difficult story I've reported on, but it, it was high up there. So w- when you started reporting on it, at what point did you think like, this is not something I'm going to publish myself. This is something that's bigger. This is something that needs to be a part of a major publication. And and like, how does that, how does that communication start? Do you reach out to one of these big, one of these big publications and say, Hey, I'm working on this story and, and explain to me how that process works. Yeah. We, when you, when, from my point of view, I mean, when you start getting multiple sources confirming different aspects of the story and, and you're kind of double and triple sourcing facts, it's like, or more, you know, I, I think there were six anonymous sources in this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when it's like, okay, we got something to work with here. 
Right. And uh, I uh, I reached out to uh, one outlet, um, you know, editors there. Uh, th- this story was actually too big a lift for them. They had gone through some editorial changes. I-, I think they were. I think they were being truthful. This was just too much for them to handle at the moment, so they passed me off to another outlet. Um, really? Yes. Wow. Yeah, uh, a bigger outlet actually. And um, I had. Uh, I ran into some issues with them. Um, they, um, you know, I had this conversation with the editor there, and he said, um, you know, could you get me like some proof? I'm like, well, what what do you mean proof? What constitutes proof in in your world? And he says, well, can you have like one of your sources like take a picture of a PowerPoint slide with his cell phone or like get some documents, like classified documents or something, bring them out? Yeah. And I was like, okay, let me get this straight. You want me to task my sources to break federal law? Yeah. So that's illegal for them to do, and I'm pretty sure it's illegal for me to do as a journalist as well. If it's certainly unethical, and he was like, "Yes," uh, it's like, "Okay, here's what I need you to do. I want you to put that in writing. I want that in a contract <laughs> where you tell me to break federal law." And uh, you should have seen how fast they backpedaled at that point. That was hilarious. Um, and uh, like, yeah, you know, anything about breaking the law, I probably don't want to put that on paper. Like, yeah, yeah, man. But the thing, the problem is if they had told a younger, less experienced journalist to do that, they may have done it. And then you would very quickly end up in this sort of like a reality winner situation, you know, where they figured out who she was in two seconds and, you know, she did prison time. I'm not playing that game. So I then went. It seems like a messy game to play, but it, do they... there's reports like this, not exactly like this, but I mean, there's similar like intelligence reports that come out of these big publications all the time. How do they deal with sources and those in, in in these typical situations? Are they always getting proof? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, In in this day and age, it's very rare that somebody is going to leak, you know, a top secret, you know, TSSCI document to you. Um, there are keystroke loggers on the classified terminals. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why it's completely idiotic to do that. Mm. And quite frankly, I, I don't, I don't want those documents, guys. Don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't send, don't send anything that says top secret on it. I don't, I, I honestly am not interested in that. Um, uh, and and I, I don't need that to do my job. So no, no that like at, at any like mainstream publication, like no, they're not getting documents to back up their stories on on this sort of stuff. No. And without giving up your sources, how do you how do you maintain relationships with these high level sources that have to remain anonymous for good reasons? How do you sort of like manage relationships with people like that? Like what are their – like especially if they're intelligence folks. Like mm-hmm. how do you sort of navigate their intentions and how do you know that they're not trying to get one over on you and trying to manipulate you? Yeah, that's that's very important. I, I think one of the things I have going for me, I'll, I'll – Maybe I'll I'll spill a little bit of tea here. In in my work in general, I tend to speak more to middle management. I don't normally speak to political, you know, mucky mucks in Washington D.C. That's not really my venue or my interest. Um, I would much much more trust a sergeant in the army or a you know like retired CIA case officer, just a normal dude. Um, when they tell you something, they're telling you because like 
they're either like they're proud of like an op they pulled off or they're pissed off about an op that went wrong. Like they're telling you that kind of for more genuine reasons. But when you get up to that like DC level, there's always some sort of political agenda. There's some sort of reason why they're leaking this information to reporters. Um, so I'll say that's one aspect of it. But another aspect is um, that's why you need to use multiple sources and confirm things. And mm. um there were some sources that were on the record, though, correct? There were a few sources who were on the record offering context to the story, yes. Okay. Yeah. Let's go back to the – you're dealing with this major publication and they're asking you for this source. You ask them for, for – they're asking you to to ask you yeah. – you're asking them and give it – put it to me in writing. So uh, you yeah. can ask me to break the law in writing. And how far does it evolve past that? Does the conversation stop there or where does it go? It kind of stopped there and uh, I went to an, yet another publication, uh, a, a pretty large, uh, well-known publication. And um, I had a – it was it, it was a ride there. Uh I, you know, this, this article, uh, my story went through a vigorous fact-checking process at that publication. Um, it, it passed through that fact-checking process. We were good to go. We had a publication plan. We were going to contact the CIA for comment, give them 48 hours to respond. And then 48 hours after that, we were going to publish. Okay. So we had a plan like this is, this is like 11th hour type shit, right? Like you're, so down- this is not standard. This is not typically how it works. No, this is, this is, okay. this is not atypical. Um, but now, now we're, we're like in the red zone here, right? We're like, we're, we're close to hitting that publish button. Uh, so we go to the CIA for comment. Um, they're on the record comment, which should be said, you know, here on the uh, on the record is uh, they deny every all of this. They say the United really? States, yeah, the, the CIA has nothing to do with these sabotage operations. It's a it's a flat denial, which they are entitled and and actually uh, um, committed to denying. Title 50 covert operations. That's completely lawful for them to right. lie to anyone okay. about a covert operation. It's not It's not illegal or unethical for them to do that. Um, okay, got it. But now the deputy director of the CIA wants to have a conversation with us, with me and the editor-in-chief of the publication. Who is the deputy director of the CIA? David Cohen. David Cohen, okay. Uh, and I, I told them, I said, look, I can talk anytime today except at like whatever it was, two o'clock or two fifty, I have to pick up my kid at school. When did that call take place? Exactly when I was picking up my daughter at school. Uh, wow. Now, now, now David Cohen had an off the record agreement with the editor of the publication, but he had no off the record agreement with me. I never spoke with him. So I will go ahead right out and tell you, David Cohen blamed the Ukrainians. Uh, they said, he said, these are rogue Ukrainian operations that the Ukrainians have gone rogue and we can't control them. That's what he said to the editor and in, in off the record comments that he made to that editor. So now the editor's coming to me and saying that we need to square the circle, meaning we need to make the CIA's off the record comments jive with this story. Wow. And then he's going into my article, and he basically scrubbed. Why, though? He scrubbed every aspect of the CIA out of this story. He wanted to make it about Ukrainian ops, which that the story is not about Ukrainian ops. That's couldn't, not what it is. Couldn't he just have taken what the CIA guy said and just added it to as context to the article? We could have added additional context, but the the, the deputy director's comments were off the record. They were off. They the could record. not for as far as talking to that editor. Like I said, I don't have an off-the-record agreement with with the, with anybody at the agency. Um, 
this uh so we we got the, now now we're into this like sort of revisionism that we're trying to make the, our this story match the deputy director's narrative and 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 I mean the reason why I mean I don't want to speculate uh, um I, yeah I'm not going to speculate I'm just going to say that's what happened okay and you can you can draw your own conclusions from that um now and now we're also dragging our feet our publication plan is kind of broken we're we're trying to square the circle right five days go by five or six days and a story miraculously appears in the new york times blaming all the sabotage operations on rogue ukrainian elements quoting anonymous intelligence officials gee i wonder who that was who could that have been wow yeah yeah and interestingly about that new york times story is there was a lot in there about the dugina assassination alexander dugan's daughter who was assassinated in a car bomb oh yeah and a lot of a lot of trying to pad around that like it's not us it's not america it's not cia it's these other these rogue elements and it, that that was interesting because my article has nothing about dugina and my line of questioning um, that I, I submitted to the CIA has nothing about Dugina. They just felt necessary to get ahead of that story and put it out there up front that we have nothing to do with it. Like I, Again, I'm not going to speculate. You can just draw your own conclusions by what may have been happening there. I mean, isn't it so – I mean, isn't there telltale signs when you see all these former Pentagon officials and CIA officials getting like salaries at these big TV channels like msnbc <laughs> and cnn they're, they're like paid uh correspondents now to come in and comment on whatever's happening you know it's one thing for a, a, a former government official i mean i understand what you're saying it, it can be a revolving door but I, I think it's one thing for a former government official to find job a job in the media offering like um commentary you know political commentary um contextual commentary on national security issues um but it's another thing for a serving high-ranking intelligence official to give him the ability to edit a fact-checked piece of journalism with off-the-record comments. It's like, hey, hold on a second. If you want, if that's the story you're going with, then I'm going to need that on the record. And we'll put that in the story. We'll right. put such and such said this about rogue ops. Right. And that's their side of it. But to make off-the-record comments, it's just – I mean, look, and I want to also be clear something about the ethics of espionage. Uh, I am not saying that the deputy director is a bad man. Um, I've been told he's actually a good person, that he's very charming. Uh, I'm not saying he's unethical. I'm not saying – it, it wouldn't even be fair to call him a liar. I, I think that's the wrong – that would be the wrong thing to say. Uh, he is upholding his professional and lawful obligation to keep covert ops off the front page of the paper. And I totally understand that. The game is the game. And he played it well and, and was effective at it. But the problem I do have is with journalists who are unable to fulfill the premise of their job, um, that, that they're more worried about the politics, that they just want to publish authorized leaks, right, that come from those official sources, the, the official leaks, right, mm. uh, rather than this type of journalism that's more... You know, it, it's kind of out there hanging gangster journalism that's, you know, comes from a totally different source. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it just goes to show you how much sway that these agent, these the government has over the biggest publications that exist in America. If this guy, if this editor was literally about trying to change the whole story according to this guy's off the record comments, I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's becoming more and more clear to us that things like this are happening. These these relationships have always existed, and there there are a series of norms I think that exist between you know journalism and the intelligence community. And um, you know, I I, I get it to a, to a large extent. Um, and there are things like as a journalist um, that I would not do. Like I said, I, I don't want to publish classified documents. I don't want to out um, covered personnel. You know, people right. who, who live under an alias. Right. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, uh, run the names of CIA assets like that. That very sensitive stuff. I'm, I do care about national security. Um, but again, there are ways to report stories. Like in this in this story, I talk about the United States and, and the CIA. Um, but we are working by, with, and through a, a liaison partner to do these sabotage operations. Right. That's and one of the interesting things about I, this. I, I, I did not name that partner um, because I think it's just too sensitive right now. Um, so th there there are a system of norms, but the, sometimes th these journalists and these editors, you know, they want to publish stories. They do want to break news, all right? It, it's, it, it's difficult to explain this to people because they, I think the public, tends to pull into one or two extremes of, you know, the media is totally compromised or the media is rogue off the rails. It's, or it, it's actually a much more, I think it's a more co complicated dynamic. Um, and I think there are editors, they want to break news, but within a certain, a narrow scope of left and right limits, they don't want to challenge the prevailing narrative too much. They don't want to be too disruptive, mm. right? They want to stay within the, the those left and right limits, those norms. And when you start talking about unauthorized leaks and things that are going to um, piss off some of their contacts in the intelligence community, they fear that that spigot could get turned off, and they're not going to get right. They're not going to get the controlled leaks anymore. And right, you right. know, I, I might piss people off saying this, but one of the things I'm most proud of is that I've never been a press corps person. I've never been a Pentagon press corps guy. I've never been a White House press corps guy. I've always been off on my own, doing my own thing. Mm -hmm. I live in Brooklyn, New York. I'm not in Washington D.C. I don't give a shit about getting invited to dinner parties in D.C. <laughs> I was never being invited to them to begin with. So I, I literally don't care if people in that town like me or not. Which is way cooler and which is why your work is so much more fascinating. Some of the mainstream stuff that we see it's, I, and so much more. It, it's it's <clears throat> it's so unique. Like I told you in the car on the way here, reading this article, it was like watching a fucking movie. You're talking about people that are sleeper cells that are mm -hmm. living here that like that have been there for up to what over a decade maybe that were possibly yeah possibly up to a decade or more and then they have buried caches of munitions that they can go find and pick up to to t carry out these operations that, that that is some shit that's out of a movie man it's fucking crazy it's uh it, it's a tightly wound and effective operation and i i think i i think it demonstrates a few things perhaps it demonstrates a renewed um, Central Intelligence Agency, one that is dealing with a threat that it knows how to counter and has prepared for for 75 years. Uh, it also reveals, the, I, I, in my opinion, the strength of our alliances and our overseas alliances mm -hmm. and how important they are. Um, with this particular partner, 
a very tight alliance. It's a, it really is a very tight partnership that we have with them. Um, but also other European allies. And, uh, we've seen that in the, this conflict in Ukraine, that it's sort of like, we're all fighting in the same direction for the first time in a long time. What was your first reaction to when this war in Ukraine between Ukraine and Russia broke out? Like, what was your initial? Re I mean, I know what the mainstream narrative was, but what was your like initial reaction? My, my initial reaction was surprised. I didn't think Putin was stupid enough to do this. I lost a bet with a good friend of mine. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're betting on, on on whether I mean that sounds a little crass to to bet a bottle of whiskey over over a conflict, but we're we're you know it's over the political action of it. And I was like, come on, dude, Putin's not dumb enough to do that. He he wouldn't do that. Um, I was wrong. I was totally wrong. Uh, <laughs> you know, we we've seen what's happened since then. Um, and then and why was he dumb to do that? Because he 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 thrust himself into a quagmire uh, that he was not prepared for, um, and. Now it, it has turned into a, a full-blown disaster for Russia that I don't know if they'll ever be able to emerge. I mean, they're being knocked decades back, backwards in time right now. Their economy is not going to recover from this. Before the, the invasion happened, obviously, there was all this reporting of all of the American arms and weapons mm -hmm. that was being deployed onto the Ukrainian border, the billions of dollars of things. And it was almost like... It was almost like we were... We've been arming and equipping them since uh, 2014. I mean, there's a pretty substantial effort going on. Right. But I'm saying like the specific, the specific time where they were gearing up to invade, how like we were also like ramping yes. up on the Ukrainian yes. side as well. And, and on top of that, we were reporting on it like crazy, yes. almost as if like, hey, Russia, we fucking dare you. Yeah. I mean, what was happening is that there is an astounding series of um you know again the and not I shouldn't say leaks I mean there were like official statements being made by by government officials like the invasions coming in 2 days you know the right, invasions coming in and what right. they were doing was they were trying to sabotage Putin um that we clearly had very strong intelligence about his intentions and what he was up to and I think how we knew that it's going to be a fascinating story in the future um but I mean, one of the criticisms I've heard from some people within the intelligence community is well, we have this huge intelligence apparatus, but we don't do anything with the intelligence. We just kind of sit on it and watch. And that's mm -hmm. what an intelligence service does. Not everything needs to lead to paramilitary action, right? Um, but, so, but some people get frustrated with that. But this was a really interesting situation where we declassified intelligence and we used it politically and diplomatically um, to warn our allies and to scare our adversaries and to kind of, I, I, as one person described it to me, kind of like taking those arrows out of Putin's quiver before he was able to fire them. Mm. So he was not able to launch any sort of surprise attack. Everyone knew it was coming by the time it happened. Right, right. These these sabotage attacks are, are uh, still happening. And, and so my question was, going back to the sabotage, why, why is it that the U.S. is doing it like through another country? Plausible what? deniability. Plausible deniability. Yeah. Yeah. So they were just they're just basically like staying on. They're staying out of it, but they're sort of like giving them the map and giving them like the orders and tactically strategically telling them what to do and helping them accomplish their missions. Right. We're, we're working through a liaison partner. So agency resources, tactical planning, intelligence, going to that partner, the partner who is training these civilian groups who are then going in and working as sabotage cells inside Russia. So we're working through a partner.
Mm. Uh, and it maintains plausible deniability. And the partner um, – and, and to clarify, in the article you say it, it's a NATO ally. Does correct. That, does that mean it's a NATO country? A NATO country, okay. yes. Okay, got it. <clears throat> uh, and you know, the other thing you have to consider is let's say the CIA was to do this directly. Um, the, the, the CIA has difficulty operating in Russia. We, we consider Russia to be denied territory. Um, our spies who work, you know, out of the embassy in Moscow are under like, cons I mean, everyone in the embassy is really under surveillance, right? Like pretty harassing surveillance, pretty heavy surveillance. Um, we have a difficult time working in Russia. So, you know, that territory is denied to the United States, but is it denied to all of our partners? who may have an easier time working there. Mm. Uh, so th this is another reason why we would work through a partner force. Why is the U why doesn't the U S and Russia, why don't they try to like maintain some sort of civility and, and work together in the world? Profound and difference in national interests, history, culture, geography. What do you mean exactly when you say that? Well, they see, you know, they're near abroad, uh, being, you know, Post-Soviet space, the stands, uh, the Baltics, um, you know, these former Warsaw Pact countries, they see that as being in their sphere of influence, and they'd like to develop that as a buffer between them and NATO. Mm. Um, but they, they've lost that. They see, you know, NATO, I don't, not incursion, but NATO encirclement. Right, um, right, right, even, right. Even talk about Georgia, you know, the, the country of Georgia yeah. joining, joining NATO. There's been conversations about that. Um, and, and so this... Uh, you know, Russia, because of its history, you know, World War II, you know, standing out in our minds, um, they have a, a history and a fear of invasions coming from, you know, their their Western flank uh, and, uh, you know, are driven by a sort of paranoia in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, Wasn't that justified that we're encircling them with NATO and they're they're basically surrounded because we have all those missile, all those launch pads from NATO all around. From them. from their perspective, certainly it's 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 a it's a real military concern that they have. And even though the notion of a NATO invasion sounds completely ridiculous, an, an invasion of Russia sounds completely ridiculous to me, or or to I think anyone, any any you know national security professional, um, that's not even a possibility. We're not going to invade a nuclear power, right? But if you're a Russian general, you have to take the possibility seriously and plan for that contingency. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I am not a, a, a Russian, you know, expert by any means. But yeah. I, I mean, I think we're just uh, we're, we're coming from two different places. Uh, our history, our culture, our geography are, is very different. Our our concerns are very different. Uh, I had one person tell me that you know, even if you ordered the CIA and the FSB to cooperate with one another that these guys have spent too much time mean mugging each other in cafes in Rome and New Delhi for decades that they, they won't work together. It, 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 that's, a, that's just a cultural uh, clash in between mm. these intelligence services. And we tried, we tried to work with them uh, after 9-11 on counterterrorism endeavors, and it, it didn't really go anywhere. Um, they, they weren't sharing information with us. I mean, I, I, there's, I'm sure there's more to the story than just that, but that cooperation didn't really work out. Mm. Yeah. It's like, what would we do though? If they put missiles in Mexico and in Canada, you know, like, oh, oh we, of we course would, we would, Russia goes, of course we'll never invade. Yeah. We would freak out and bomb the hell out of them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I certainly understand, uh, understand Russia's consternation, but, 
I'm let's also consider Russia's own belligerence uh, and, and their invasion of Georgia in 2008, their invasion of Ukraine uh, in 2014. Mm-hmm. They're engaging in this sort of aggressive uh, territory expansion, uh, you know, uh, eastward into into Ukraine and into Europe. Um, and Europe has played this game before. Right. They've been there before. And one of the things we learned from the past is you can't appease a dictator. Mm. Yeah. Do you think uh, like speaking about these these sleeper cells that are in Russia, whether they're from the U.S. or from whatever NATO country, do you think how many of these sleeper cells are currently in the U.S. that are from Russia or from them? That's a good question. People have asked me that before. And I I think that this comes up in a number of uh, regards Um, (laughs) for a long time. There were fears about Hezbollah sleeper cells in America and like how we can't do anything too provocative against Iran because these sleeper cells will activate and conduct acts of terrorism in America. Well, you know, we uh, assassinated Qasem Soleimani, leader of Quds Force in Baghdad a few years ago. Where were these Hezbollah sleeper cells? Nowhere. Mm. Uh, Now, here we are. um, We're fighting this proxy war with Russia. The, and, you know, and the Russians know that they're being hit. They know that the, that there is an intelligence agency hitting them, you know, on their home turf. Um, if there are Russian sleeper cells here, my question is, what are they waiting for? Right. So I think that we can sometimes overestimate our enemy's capabilities and project all sorts of things into them. Uh, at this point, I really think we have to call into question, you know, the last 70 years of Russia analysis that we've done, that we have built up Russia into a boogeyman mm-hmm. that maybe they never were they were to begin with. You know, I did an interview with Milt Bearden, who ran the uh, agency's covert program in Afghanistan the first time in the 80s, the Stinger program. Mm-hmm. And he said the most pushback he ever got from cable traffic he sent back to Langley was when he was writing about how the Russian military was underperforming in Afghanistan in the 80s. He said the the vehement anger that came from some of the analysts that he misread the situation, didn't understand the Russian army because they were so committed to this idea of the Russian bear. And it was inconceivable that their military was you know, not performing. Um, and now we've seen this in Ukraine, yeah. where this military we built up in our own minds <clears throat> these these ideas of uh, you know artillery barrages and human wave attacks and you know the, like you know the sort of like wholesale destruction I guess that we saw in Grozny um, in Chechnya uh, we've sort of built that up uh, mm. built up in an enemy of our own imagination and although i mean i don't mean to minimize it either there is a real national security threat there's a real national security threat from china as well but again i think we have to couch some of our assumptions about how the chinese military would perform let's say if they were to invade taiwan i mean the chinese military and when was the last time they did a large-scale amphibious landing operation? When was the last time they did an air assault operation? Like, their military has basically no combat experience. Like, when was the last time they did any of that? So these capabilities don't come out of nowhere. Um, the American military's capabilities came out of a lot of failures, honestly. Like, we screwed up a lot, and, you know, we we had to fix ourselves afterwards. Right. So... I, I do think we should take these, uh, these these sorts of threats seriously, but at the same time, there is an institutional 
and a um, even a career incentive to exaggerate the threat. And the American public really doesn't respond um, to anything unless it's an emergency. Like we're so desensitized that like it really has to be in Americans' faces. Yeah. Like 9-11, you know, or, or like the way we talk about climate change, like climate apocalypse right now. If something's not done right now, we're all going to die. Like everything is this it has this immediacy, this 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 emergency, and it's like nothing less than that gets the attention of American citizens. Right, right, yeah. We live in a society like that, man. Everything is like that, you know. And it goes to again, like t- comparing Russia to the United States. Just like while we're on this topic, we were talking briefly. I was mentioning to you briefly about like the Oliver Stone Putin interviews, where he's he's having that discussion with Putin. It's a I think he spent like over 36 hours with him talking and it was edited down into a four hour documentary, four episodes, one hour each. And again, he's covering all these topics with Putin. You can say whatever you want about Oliver Stone, like he's anti-American, he's pro-dictator, but he does have a very open conversation, discussion with Putin and he challenges him on a lot of things. And Oliver claims that Putin did not even ha- get to see the edit before it was published. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what he said. Um, and again, he challenges him on these on all these topics. And Putin is able to have a free flowing, deep conversation about these things. You can tell he's thought about this stuff, and he's he's making judgments that he think is best that he thinks is best for his country, and he's. He, it seems like, I mean, obviously, you know, the, he's a bad guy. He's done lots of bad things. I'm not saying that Putin's a good guy. I'm just saying that it's very valuable to be able to have those kind of conversations and see where that guy's mind's at. Uh, some people will say that it's all bullshit. It's just like everything he said was a lie. He fabricated all that to make him look good, to make Russia look good. But it was very fucking convincing. Yeah. I haven't heard an American president say something that was that convincing in a long time. Yeah, I I mean, look, Putin would not be in that position as long as he has been if he was stupid, right? I I can absolutely believe that he's a very Mm -hmm. smart man, Um, you know, made a a strategic error in Ukraine. The Russian military revealed itself to be rather incompetent. Yeah, I I think it would be wrong to underestimate Putin. I mean, he's basically installed himself as president for life. He's an entrenched bureaucrat. He's created a political system around him that keeps him in power. Um, Yeah, a stupid person doesn't have that sort of resiliency. Mm -hmm. And compared to America, the look at our presidents that they spend usually four years and mm-hmm. how much of that time is spent just on the election cycle just two. trying to win the next election two out of four years <laughs> it's like how do you get anything done should shouldn't the should the american pre- i've been thinking about like shouldn't the american presidency be 10 years would that be better would i don't, I don't know the answer to that but yeah this democracy thing it's, it's kind of it's, or if you like <laughs> like the term limits like why not if the people want to vote these people in and keep this guy keep this person president like how would that be a bad thing i don't know it's just got me thinking, listening to all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I know I, I get it. I mean, our system has a lot of drawbacks, and it's kind of a shit show. <laughs> but I, I, I do think it's better than having president for life, and you know, a lot, a lot of these other systems have led to so many excesses and abuses. And I, I, I would, pr- I prefer the messy American style to some of the other systems that I, I've seen out there. Mm. What do you think a full scale war would look like between the U.S. and Russia? It's hard to imagine that without a nuclear exchange. And then the question is, will it be a limited nuclear exchange or a full-blown 
you know, ICBM, strategic nuclear weapons exchange, the end of the world type stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, two nuclear powers going to war. We have very little data on that. Pakistan and India have done it on a few occasions. 1999, cargo conflict. Um, they went, they fought a conventional war um, on the Kashmir um, line mm-hmm. without uh, without any sort of nuclear exchange. Um, now we're seeing, you know, some new norms maybe being established or tested in Ukraine where, you know, the Ukraine, the Ukrainians as a proxy for, you know, NATO, as some people see them, um, are fighting back against Russia, retaking territory, and it hasn't escalated to WMDs, right? Right. The the Russians have not pulled that, that, um, because they know how dire the repercussions would be. Mm -hmm. Uh, and no, I don't think anyone wants to go there. That's what, uh, you know, in that film i was telling you about with oliver stone he he asked him what that would look hit him the same question he said putin said nobody would win he said it would be the end of the world yeah and and i don't think the russians want that i don't think vladimir putin wants that mm. and, and neither does any single nato nation <laughs> decide right. that either so it's interesting how you know there's always this um as I, I talked to an analyst named michael kaufman for the this article and he speaks to how there's this fear that nations will um, stumble into war, that it'll happen accidentally, um, that one one side makes a move that's misinterpreted, or one side crosses a red line without knowing it, or an accident happens mm. and it triggers you know World War III. That there's a fear of that, but he he points out that this isn't really the way nation states think. That they look at an incident as it happens and decide how they want to respond to it and if the ROI, it works out for them or not. They may choose to ignore certain operations and pretend they're just accidental fires because they don't want that particular subject to go any further. Mm. And it's more convenient, uh, politically expedient uh, to just ignore it for now. Um, You don't think that this has anything to do with that Nord Stream explosion? I, I, well... Obviously, it's all speculation, but... I mean, these things may be interconnected. I, I, the, the true answer to be transparent, I don't know. I don't know what happened to the Nord Stream pipeline. Mm-hmm. I have heard theories from sources, mm-hmm. um, speculating, um, that, you know, speculating that the Russians did this either with saturation divers or with unmanned vehicles. Uh, I have talked to, uh, what the, uh explain what a saturation diver Oh, just, is uh, here. divers coming off a submarine, um, uh, breathing off of mixed gas, like deep sea diving. Uh, and I've talked to other people who, um, say no, that, that we would not hit a target like this at this time, uh-huh. uh, because of how sensitive it is. It's partly owned by, by Germany, another NATO ally. Uh-huh. Um, so they're saying, no, we, we would not hit a tar- this target. Um, did the Russians blow it up? I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I think, mm. uh, more to follow on that. I want to go into the saturation diving again. We were talking, yeah, yeah. We were talking briefly about this. There's a, you said there's a, a guy here who was a saturation diver somewhere in Florida. How, how do we, how do we get this topic got brought up before we started the podcast? I oh, think. well, I mean, geez, down in Panama city, Florida is uh, the Navy's experimental dive unit, uh, where they do all sorts of cool things and develop new gear and test. New oh, things. really? That's in Panama city. I yeah. had no idea. Yeah, Panama City is a kind of a, a center for some of that stuff. Um, some some spooky goings on down there, you might say, uh, with some other things happening down there. Um, there was. Um, tell me more. Tell me more. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> well, I did this story uh, years ago. Uh, it was um, 
it was about a CIA operation that went wrong in the um, not quite the South China Sea. It's um, in, in north of Luzon uh, in uh, the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was an operation where some CIA paramilitary guys, they're called, uh, it's called Maritime Branch. Uh, <clears throat> there's, you know, the three components are Air Branch, Ground Branch, and Maritime Branch. So these guys have, you know. These are the three different para- paramilitary okay. components. And there's also like the covert influence group that guys who do like propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so Mar Branch has four guys on a small boat and they're to go out there. They're under like a civilian cover. Um, and they're going to go on one of these like atolls out there that, you know, where it's like some rocks that are visible at low tide. They're going to send some, a couple divers out with a, a, this pod. It's disguised to look like a rock, but it's packed with like sensitive electronics, like classified electronics. And they're going to put the pod in the, in the rocky, you know, atoll and it's going to monitor Chinese military traffic in the area coming through the area. Uh, what happens is as they're heading out to complete their mission, uh, a hurricane starts sweeping through, through the, uh, through the Pacific. They have to make a decision. Do we continue with the mission? Because the, the hurricane was supposed to like veer north and, and miss their area of operations. So they decide, yeah, we're going to go ahead with the operation. Well, the hurricane did not veer. It barreled straight towards them. And by that point, there was no, nothing they could do to avoid it. They could go north, south, east, west. It didn't matter. They'd get hit full full bore with the, the hurricane. And um, I guess they were wedged between the hurricane and what, like mainland China? They were out in the middle of nowhere, really. Oh, okay. Yeah. On like a, like a 30-foot boat. And there was uh, the... the there was a beacon on that on that boat that the agency was monitoring, and it flashed out in the middle of the hurricane. No trace of those four maritime branch guys or the boat itself were ever found. Not not a floating life preserver. Nothing. Absolutely nothing was ever found. Uh, you know those four guys who died. Um, you know there was a, a younger guy named Michael Perrick, uh, who was a graduate of the uh, Merchant Marine Academy. There was a retired EOD Navy diver named Stephen Stanick. Um, there was another, you know, uh, Navy guy, um, part of like a Marine Union, uh, Daniel Meeks. And then the there was a mechanic on board also. And geez, I'm sorry, his name escapes me right now. It's, it's definitely in the article I wrote. Um, but those four guys perished, you know, um, and they uh, they got stars on the wall at CIA headquarters. Now, typically operations like this where things go wrong and people don't come back, those things typically aren't reported on, right? Because people don't even know that they're doing what they're doing. And it was one of the eeriest stories I ever reported on because for a long time, I'm looking at this. It was so eerie because as time went on, I was able to, it it was really difficult, but I dug up all four of the names and I got death certificates and I could tell these were human beings. They actually lived and they died. But beyond these death certificates, it's like it's like they just vanished off the face of the earth and nobody said anything about it. And um I, I think that's part of the reality of, you know, our, you know, I think I called them in the article secret sailors. Uh these are our covert operators, if you will. Um, and that even in death, 
their their life and death remains a secret. Oh my God, yeah, it's coming back to me now. I think that is this the story where these guys had uh, their identities traced back to uh, like a building or a fake business? Yes, that was placed in the Panhandle. Yes, that makes sense now. So yeah, so what else is going on in the Panhandle with these? with these diving teams and these, is this maritime branch still a thing? Maritime branch definitely exists. Yeah. They, they have, um, you know, civilian charter civilian vessels that they, they operate and they can do different things to get people, um, in and out of certain places in certain situations or do different types of missions. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean there, yeah, down there on the panhandle, there's a big presence of spooky stuff, you know, both, both intelligence community and Navy. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's spooky about it? It's just covert op stuff. Uh, Ivory Bells was the program to uh, tap into undersea cables. That there's components of that program run out of there. Um, yeah, it's interesting stuff. What kind of, are they use, utilizing? Any sort of like unknown or classified like like technology? To you were mentioning that these guys are diving like thousand a thou to a thousand feet underwater. Well, it, those are like experiments that are conducted, right? To see they're, the the Navy does these like kind of like NASA type experiments, um, except underwater with divers. Right. See, like how deep can they go? How much bottom time can we get them once they're down there? Um, and experimenting with different types of mixed gas. And yeah, that one guy who was telling me he was under like a thousand feet of water. And because the oxygen in that tank gets compressed more and more, the deeper you go, he said that when he was down there at the bottom, it was like he was trying to suck maple syrup through his regulator, yeah. breathing in that what, that oxygen gas. Um, so yeah, these guys, I mean, they can be deployed off of submarines or they can be deployed off boats, and just, you know, there, there's all sorts of different different ways you can get these guys there. Um, but you know, we're talking they about they can be deployed off of a submarine. Yeah, yeah, they can lock out of a submarine. Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, the SEALs do that too for a different mission, a uh, different type of mission, the SEAL delivery vehicle, and they can go ashore and conduct reconnaissance and things oh, like that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then the Navy divers um, can they conduct you know undersea espionage? That's a thing, and one of those things is tapping fiber optic undersea cables. And I mean, everyone taps fiber. Um, America, Russia, France, Israel. UK. I mean, we're all tapping fiber. We're all tapping each other and we all know it. Yeah. There, well, there's even a term for some of that. Um, if you've ever heard of fourth party collection. No. A fourth party collection is when you go into, um, you know, you're exploring around trying to find a place to exploit the adversary's communications. So let's, let's say, let's, let's stick with this example. We send some divers underwater to go tap an undersea fiber optic cable. So they go down there with all their equipment. They're ready to tap into it and they get there and it's like, oh shit, there's already a tap on it, but it's not ours. It's let's say, let's say for this example, it's, uh, it's Russian. Let's say it's the Russians tapping a French owned fiber optic cable. Now what we can do is fourth party collection would be we tap into the tap <laughs> And so we now we we're we're collecting everything that's going through the fiber optic cable, but we also know all of the information that the Russians are getting because we're tapped into their tap. Right. So it's sort of like a this like omnipresent sort of intelligence collection method that you you get to know what everybody the information that everybody's getting. Um and th th yeah, that's a thing. 
That's scary, man. That's that's wild. In the old days, it was done with induction cables. And I did an interview with uh, Jim Olson, who's a CIA officer. And this guy went down a manhole cover in uh, in Moscow and tapped into fiber optic communication cables with like calipers, like induction cables. Yeah, Really? Yeah, it's interesting stuff. You've, you've talked to so many different CIA people. Like you've talked to, you've talked to, well, it's been dozens of CIA, DIA, spies, people that were sleeper cells. Like what, what, what is it about these people that is so fascinating to us? You know, I, 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 people find different things in, in them. Um, like we make movies about these people. They, they're. They're the most viewed stories on the internet, on YouTube, everywhere you go. It's just there's something about it that that makes us just so infatuated with these I stories. Mean, I mean, I, I just have a, a enduring fascination with special operations and covert operations, and I, I just find that stuff fascinating. I want to know. As do I. I want to know everything about it. I want to know, you know, every time someone brings up secret operations, you say, clicking my pen, like, <laughs> well, I get, ex I get excited. I, I, I love that stuff, you know? And, um, you know, I, uh, I, I would do my job for free if I could, uh, mm -hmm. I have to pay rent and I have to buy food like a normal person. But mm -hmm. I mean, I, I love it. I love, I, I love reporting on it. I love talking to these people. I love interviewing them. Or I love writing these stories. Do you get any shit from people for talking about this Hell kind yeah. of stuff? Hell yeah. What kind Absolutely. Of, what kind of, what kind of pushback or what kind of bullshit do you get from people who get pissed off about you reporting on this? Diff different varieties of shit. Um, there are people within the special ops community who hate my guts. I mean, we're down here in Tampa, uh, you know, Special Operations Command and McDill. I mean, I think they have my picture on a dartboard down there. Uh, I'm not, uh, yeah, I am, I'm not loved and respected by uh, the entire Special Operations community because I, I tell them, you know, truths that they don't want to hear a lot of times mm. and sometimes expose, uh, you know, some dirty things that are happening in their units uh, that they would rather not have out there publicly, um, you know, for career reasons. Um, you know, the intelligence community handles journalists a lot smarter than, you know, at special ops, I feel like those guys are running around with their hair on fire, scared to death of negative press, like every day, like they just, they just have never learned how to handle it. Right. They're, they're like, their skin is so paper thin that the smallest thing just sends them off into a tirade. Um, not everybody, but I, I just noticed that with some of the leadership that they're very, very sensitive and they don't know how to engage with the media, the intelligence community, they're, they're more like slick. They're more like GQ. They have like professional comms people that work for them and handle, you know, people like me sticking their nose places. Mm. <clears throat> um, so yeah, I would say that, yeah, they handle things a lot better. Um, but yeah, I mean, I catch all sorts of varieties of shit, um, from people within, um, also people without, um, I, I, at a certain point, I just kind of ignore it. You know, one day people are saying I'm a paid CIA shill. The next day people are saying I'm a paid FSB shill. <laughs> I mean, it's like they can't, th these weirdos can't even keep their stories straight. It's so I, I end up just ignoring all of it. I mean, I, I, I trust in my sourcing in my reporting. Um, if my stories have, you know, integrity, if they're telling the truth, mm. then I, I'm just going to go with that. And I, what I, the, the, the metaphor I use is like when, when people hear, an uncomfortable truth that they don't necessarily want to hear. 
they go through a phases of denial that it, it's really like the stages of grief when when a loved one dies. They go through these five stages. And the first phase is denial. No, this isn't happening. Mm-hmm. They go through like the bargaining phase where they're like, well, part of Jack's story is right, but some of it isn't. You know, take it with a grain of salt, guys. And then eventually they get to acceptance. And it, it takes some time to get there. I mean, th- this story here that we've been talking about, this story is going to take some time for people to digest and to process. And uh, it's not going to happen overnight. Does it, what kind of what kind of pushback have you had on this story since you published it? Are people? I, I assume people would say, you know, you're compromising national security. You're you're compromising um, CIA operations that are going to. From the from the intelligence community, the response has been a deafening silence. Just okay. nothing, mm-hmm. nothing at all. Uh, from the public, a tremendous public interest in this story. Uh, a lot of people reading it and, and enjoyed reading it and thought it was informative and helpful. Um, some people, I notice ideological people, um, they, they see the world through that ideological lens and they tend to get upset with some of my reporting because it doesn't match their, you know, worldview, uh, whether it comes, whatever whatever that worldview is um you know i've had you know the the alt right people mad at me sometimes i've had the far fringe left mad at me other times again i just ignore that stuff because it's like they need to go talk to a therapist about that stuff it's not my drama mm. right um but i mean the response has been good um the only like i haven't really had any pushback i mean what about from like people like your colleagues in the military you ever have people like people that you have a relationship with come out you and be like jack what the fuck yes yeah absolutely that has to be difficult i've had fallings out with friends for sure um i've had people come to me sometimes they'll even try to like be manipulative like you know we served together back in the day jack you should change that headline that shouldn't say that it's just kind of gross and it makes you feel like were we ever really friends if you see it as like something transactional like this you feel you can hit me up 10 years later and try to get me to change my story like what what is this Mm. um things like that but yeah no there there are definitely there are teammates, former teammates of mine who don't agree with everything I do, mm-hmm. um, and we're still friends, and that's fine. I mean, they, they, they're, they're their own person, and they make their own decisions, and I respect their decisions and you know their views, and, I, and I'm, I'm open to hearing um, what they think. I'm sure you can empathize with people like yourself that have come out of the military that haven't found meaning or purpose when you have. Right. You, you've, you've found something, you've built something, you're, you're working towards something, but I'm sure there's a lot of friends yes. that you've dealt with that are going through hell that, that just, you know, yeah. I, I know there's a, a, a huge amount of veterans that kill themselves every day. In my, my, my stories and my words, um, sometimes impact those guys and they hit them like, they feel like it's a, it's a punch below the belt. Right. As they're, they're trying to figure out their way in the civilian life. And, and here comes Jack Murphy saying this really, this really bad thing happened, you mm-hmm. know, in special forces or whatever the story may be. Right. Um, and they, they, they take it personally, um, which I, I understand. Um, I've tried to be, yeah, a little bit more empathetic about how I talk about veterans and understanding that they're going through the same process I went through at one point. I, I was there. Right. 
I, I was that angry yeah. guy who got out of the military and mm -hmm. didn't know. I had no idea how to live life. You know what right. I mean? Because I'd never really lived in real life. I'd been in this cloistered military environment the entire time. Since you were a teenager, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, think about if you spend 20, 25, 30 years in the military. Right. You've basically been put into a time capsule. Yeah. And when now you're in, in uh, the civilian world. And you're having all these realizations. One of those realizations is they're realizing that the America they thought they were fighting for, you know, this image they had of America of, you know, guy putting his flag out on the porch on Memorial Day, you know, the sort of leave it to beaver America. Like that that doesn't exist. It never existed. But And they're realizing this for the first time when they retire and suddenly they're in the civilian world and they're seeing all these people walk around and like, I, the, the, the example I've given is, let's say you're like, a legit badass guy like you were the command sergeant major of delta force like you went you went up to the top you did everything you you're you're a badass dude you come into the civilian world and you tell people i was a command sergeant major in delta force their first question is going to be what is command sergeant major <laughs> what is delta force and well i was and they're, 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 it's not that they're anti-military it's just because we have an all-volunteer force mm -hmm. there there's not a shared culture or a common understanding like there was with like world war ii veterans like if you were sitting in a boardroom in 1950 no i i mean i can't imagine someone there being like you know i was in the battle of the bulge and you know you guys mm -hmm. are a bunch of pussies because everyone else in that boardroom will look at them and like, yeah, so I fought in Ardennes, you know, I was at, I was at Omaha beach. Like everyone there was a veteran, right? right. You know, some dude, some guy was a Marine fighting in the Pacific. Yeah. It was a different shared culture that existed in that moment. I want to go to, you are, I don't, when, I don't know when you published it, but the story that you were working on with, that involved human trafficking at, uh, I published that like a week ago. Fort Bragg. That was only a week ago. How long had you been working on that story? It came together very quickly. Um, yeah, I mean, some of these stories, like this one, like worked on that like what eight months. That CIA Maritime Branch story, I worked on that for like two years. Mm, wow. Um, yeah, and then and then, but then that that Special Forces story that you're talking about, I worked on that. Um, I was up till two in the morning working on that. Woke up the next day and wrote it. Um, and yeah, you want you want to talk about the genesis behind that story? It's interesting. A lot of the I, I shouldn't say a lot. But a few of these stories, like the sort of like drama insider baseball happening in these units, um, the way I found out about this one was because all these guys on Instagram were posting memes about it. Like, oh, third group's getting drug tested and, you know, here's all this crazy stuff that's happening. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So I, I send a message to one of these uh, accounts. I know who runs it. And I was like, spill the tea. Tell me everything now. And so, <laughs> and so he tells me, he tells me all the insider baseball that's going on. And I'm like, holy shit. And so I, I reach out to like probably 20 people that night and start getting little bits and pieces of it. And I'm able to document little pieces of it. Um, so what happened was back in December, there was a special forces soldier, um, uh, based on Fort Bragg moonlighted as a bouncer at o'donnell's pub which is like a frequently um it's a pub in southern pines uh i've been there before it's a nice place and it's frequented by the special forces dudes they hang out there and this guy um was allegedly pimping underage girls 
and he got picked up by an undercover agent. And I, I've seen his charge sheet. So he, he's charged with kidnapping, statutory rape, human trafficking of a minor, and uh, something else like, like uh, I can't remember the exact charge, but there's another one thrown in there also. So they picked this guy up. And I'm not clear if, uh, I don't know if he's talking to law enforcement or they just ripped his phone. Um, I think they got on his cell phone and that led to um, them basically to CID, the criminal investigation division, um, questioning like something like 15 people um, over the weekend and uh, like two weeks ago now. And they, uh, on, on drug related charges uh, and they did recalls of special forces, third group battalions, first battalion got mm -hmm. called in on Sunday and they piss tested all of them. Um, I don't know exactly how many came up hot, but this is unfolding into like a pretty big deal. Uh, there's a lot of people involved and, um, there's only one soldier being charged with human trafficking, just to be clear at this time. Um, there are others who are, it looks like they're going to be charged with uh, felony use of cocaine. And I don't know how many others, um, have pissed hot on the urinalysis tests. Uh, that remains to be seen, but this story is unfolding. I can say I've continued working on this. There is a lot, a lot going on here that I, I'm just not prepared to speak about this time because I have to do my my diligence on the story before I speak about it publicly. But I, I, I would feel comfortable in saying there, there's much more to follow on this. How does something like this get go so off the rails at a base like this at Fort Bragg? Like how does this what how does this obviously this started somewhere and went fucking yes. way off the rails and got into territory yes. where it's like out of control. I, I can answer that question. Um you know, it's a question of culture and a question of subcultures and the infiltration of organized crime into the military plays a role in it. Uh, and then you have the issue of um, leadership, lack of leadership. Um, you have leaders who are compromised themselves. And when leaders turn a blind eye to some illegal activities, it's a signal to the rest of the force that they can also get away with it. And the problem gets worse and worse and worse. And it, you end up with a subculture that resembles the mafia in the sense that everyone has dirt on everyone else. Mm. And everyone's scared that somebody in their network is going to defect, right? And, and, you know, sing like a canary to try to save themselves. Mm. And that may be what's happening right now. Um, so the, the, the short answer is, yeah, it's a question of a, a toxic subculture, an insular uh, subculture uh, that is largely immune from peer review and accountability and visibility. Um, special operations has come forward in the last couple of years and acknowledged that they have an ethical problem in the ranks. Um, they've done publications about this, talking about it, trying to get the conversation going. They understand there's a perception mm -hmm. um, because of all the news stories that have come out over the you know last 10 years, especially. Um, but I don't think that message is being heard. Um, the military, you have to understand it's a, it's a large institution and it's not particularly creative. It operates along standard operating procedures. And so when they have problems like this, whether it's the Navy SEALs going through their stuff or special forces, the default 
method of bringing discipline back into the force is, okay, we're going to have more formations. We're going to have haircut and uniform inspections. We're going to inspect your barracks. Uh, you're going to do organized PT. Uh, it's all this sort of like army stuff. Mm. Um, but the problem with a lot of that is I don't think that is necessarily, I mean, maybe that's a tool you can use, but I'm not totally convinced that that's going to stamp out drug use or, or, or horrible things like human trafficking, um, there, that, that has to be bottom up. That has to do with like the NCO culture. Right. And it's not, there, there's no like action. The Colonel can't make you sit inside a briefing. Uh, hey, because they already do make them sit in briefings like, Hey, don't do drugs. Don't traffic humans. There, there's literally an anti-human trafficking, like training module soldiers have to do like quarterly. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that that's those sorts of like corporate corporatized leadership um, mechanisms. They don't really work in my view. Um, that that really has to come from the bottom up. How? Uh, what is the motivation for human trafficking in places like this? Well, I mean, soldiers. Um, we have human trafficking. Uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, where Fort Bragg is, yeah. is like a human trafficking hub in the United States. That's like publicly known and and, and talked about by law enforcement. Oh wow. Yeah, um, but so, so they're so, becoming a part of these rings and profiting off them, making and, and aren't like making money from this. In, in at least one case, this was happening. Okay, um, and then soldiers also go to, or these soldiers are deployed to parts of the world where there is frequent human trafficking. So mm. there's, that's another reason why you know you should be cautious. Well, I, I bet dealing with sources on stories like this can be pretty brutal yeah pretty explosive i mean you're dealing with people uh, the sources i'm sure are very close to some of the stuff that's going on here i'm not i don't know if they're still at these bases or not but that's got to be a very very delicate situation there there's a lot of trauma and there's a lot of fear um there have been a lot of narcotics related deaths in the fort bragg area um, Seth Harp is a reporter who's done much more reporting on this than I have, mm. um, uh, talking about the fentanyl and killings around the Fort Bragg area. Um, but there's, a, there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of trauma from 20 years of war and the fallout that has on the soldiers and on their family members. Um, it's a, it's a mess. Honestly, it, it's a train wreck. I mean, at some point we just have to call it what it is. We have to come out in the open and say, we have a huge fucking problem on our hands. Like the denials just don't cut it anymore. The PR doesn't cut it anymore. Like we have to admit that we have this problem and then we can start working to solve it. Mm. I wanted to also talk briefly about, um, like, it's interesting to me, the differences between people across different branches of the military and, and how mm -hmm. they are after, uh, like they retire from the military. Like, for example, yesterday I was talking to a Navy fighter pilot and, uh, it's interesting to me, the dichotomy between the psychology of a Navy fighter pilot going to war compared to the psychology of a boots on the ground ranger on the, you know, in a firefight in Afghanistan and, and how disconnected the fighter pilots are from the killing compared to the people on the ground and how that affects them in the trajectory of their lives afterward. Um, this guy I talked to Ryan, the, the fighter pilot, you know, he seemed to, he was very matter of fact, the way he was talking and, and, you know, I know there's drone pilots that do the same thing. That's a little bit different because you're not actually like, you're not actually flying a plane. You're sitting like at a computer, like you're playing a video game, killing people. And I know there's people that have dealt with severe 
severe PTSD from that. Um, but it's interesting to me hearing those stories compared to like your story, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when you talk about like, you know, you witnessed a guy, you were there when a guy was squirting out of a building and you guys like took him down yeah. <laughs> and, and it was essentially nothing to you. Right. But it's so wild how that can be your experience. But a guy in Las Vegas operating a drone can be so fucked up from something like it, this. it's so it's so uh, situational you know and you know there could be other guys who witnessed that same event and have post-traumatic stress from it because they experienced it in a different way right that's right true. um and and i don't i don't mean that as a judgment uh, against anyone mm -hmm. um there were guys in that deployment who you know, saved their buddies' lives, injured guys, you know, limbs getting blown apart. I mean, there's terrible stuff. And um, there's a lot of different ways that guys can get PTSD. But I think what you, what you touch on there is really interesting, the way that different positions, people in different occupations in the military get different PTSD. Mm -hmm. um, so like one thing, I would I would have laughed at this at one point in my life, but through talking to people, I, have a, I think I have a better understanding of it. Analysts get PTSD. Uh, and the reason why it's not, but they're obviously not seeing a lot of blood and gore necessarily. They're, they're working in a operation center, working behind a computer, but they are so firmly engrossed in their work and they feel all this pressure on them that I have to get it right or soldiers are going to die. And they're, so they're like, their, their burnout rate is pretty high. I mean, they're trying to bring in all this information and distill it and analyze it and put together intelligence products. And if a bomb goes off somewhere and kills somebody, sometimes their thought is that's my fault. I should have, why did I miss that? And which is bullshit. It's the fault of the guy who planted the bomb, but that's the kind of pressure that a lot of analysts put on themselves and why they, they come away with PTSD from the job. Um, the drone pilots, like you mentioned, um, yeah, they are sitting behind like a, it's called like a remote control station or something like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Playing quote unquote video game, but the sensors on those drones, the video cameras have advanced significantly and you can zoom right in and see all the gory details. And, um, I did an article for connecting vets about drone strikes in Afghanistan towards the tail end of the war, um, and what some of the drone pilots were going through. And I mean, they're seeing death every day. And, and they, the pilots I talked to started to have severe moral issues with the types of killings we were doing that we were just dropping on anybody who used a radio, touched a radio. You thought you saw a tack vest under their under their shirt you thought maybe you saw the barrel of a kalashnikov under their vest like like we were just like killing all kinds of people in helmand province during that time frame and they started to have serious moral injury over this and one of the guys i talked to he has stories like they dropped on uh on this man unarmed male walking in a field blew him up his wife comes running out of the house and grabs his body and is crying. And she looks up in the sky and is shaking her fist. What? Yeah. And they watch this. They also get the grim duty of watching the bodies, pulling surveillance on the bodies after they kill them and watching the people come and pick them up. Take Where do they, where do they take the body? Do they They're take supposed them? to watch this. Yeah. Yeah. Gather more intelligence. The kid I talked to on this podcast that was doing that, he said that when he was doing it, he was brought in at a very, very young age. I think he wasn't even, I think he was like maybe what, just 18. What, what platform did he fly? 
I don't remember off the top of my some, head. Some of the Army RPA pilots are quite young. Yeah, I could go. I could probably pull it up and find out exactly what the what the drone that he was flying was. But I remember he was. I want to say he wasn't even eighteen when he got recruited. I don't know if that's possible or legal, but I could be wrong. Um, you can enlist at seventeen. Okay. Um, and yeah, I think you can start basic training at seventeen. But then I, I'm not exactly clear, sure what the law is offhand. But like, I don't think you can go to combat until eighteen. I think that's the the, the rule. Mm. Okay. Yeah, no, and, and you know, he, he was explaining the culture too of those people in there. Like if they have any if they have anything to say or like they're not allowed to give any opinions on what they're doing, they're told what they're going to do and if they show any sort of like vulnerability in this job, they're immediately out, outcast or called a pussy or called you know this guy in particular he was saying that that was very much the culture like that like if you showed any sort of emotion doing these kind like like carrying out these kinds of acts that you were basically punished for it seems real tough in the moment right but how many of those guys now have severe ptsd themselves yeah and are cracking up and and are you know having a really rough go at it mm -hmm. you know Let's look, let, you know, unpack those units, look at their suicide rates. And, and then you ask yourself the question, was this really the right way to handle personnel, mm -hmm. you know, to ostracize people, call people pussies, like instead of, mm -hmm. you know, trying to process what they were going through in a, in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. Have you ever talked to any like fighter pilots? I, I have. I, I'm again, I'm, this aviation is not like my area of expertise, but right, sure. Right. Obviously. Yeah. What, what do you think, what, from you what did you deduce from talking to to fighter pilots who have been deployed overseas and like what is their how does their experience or their view of everything differ from yours being down there or like the culture or their day-to-day -day life i think it, i think it's a little bit different they're a, a little bit removed from it I, even the helicopter pilots it, it's a it's a different perspective. It's not a bad perspective but yeah they 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 do come from a different place they're well they're stationed on carriers right and in, in like what like where how far away are the aircraft carriers from like when they go to like carry out strikes over afghanistan or iraq like how uh, i don't think we were flying off carriers except during the invasion which was a huge that was a very long movement for them um and, and how this might be a dumb question, but how connected are you guys? Or is there any communication between the Navy jets? Oh, certainly, yeah. I mean, this is the thing that Americans do very well is uh, we do joint operations very well. So yeah, there's like, there will be like liaisons, there will be meetings, there's there's all kinds of coordinations. And with special ops um, teams on the ground, usually you have a Air Force JTAC, um, so a, an Air Force guy joint terminal attack controller. So it's an Air Force guy who's trained specifically to talk to aircraft in the air and tell them where to drop their bombs. So okay. it, it's like, that's like a very like tight relationship. Okay. Um, and then, so going back to the journalism side of things. So, so after you got back and you started doing some of your journalism stuff, were you contracted to do any sort of like any sort of, I mean, you mentioned briefly that you did some sort of work in Africa. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't a contract job. That was actually something that I, I was asked to do and my dumbass did it for free. <laughs> um, it was really it was business development essentially. I, I was working with a small group of people and we were testing out some um, open source intelligence methodologies. Um, I did it. It was briefed at a fairly high level. 
Uh, they didn't really know what to do with it, though. They didn't know what authorities they could even use that under. Um, but it's very interesting about like a year, a year and a half ago, I saw the special forces commander in an interview talking about one of the things I worked on. And I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> some of it got through. Who are you working for? It, it, it wasn't really working for anybody. I mean, it was just a, a kind of an informal group of people. Okay. Um, there was like maybe a couple small, like they owned their own little LLCs. But I mean, it was essentially like a, a proof a proof of concept that you could arrive in country and set up an open source intelligence platform um, with things that are off the shelf that you can get there. And, um, you know, there, there's this one concept, the one that I heard the special forces commander use that uh, we were testing out was called the naked man. <laughs> the, the naked man was a concept that, um, that the, these people came up with that, um, you, that when you go into denied areas, Russia, Iran, China, whatever it is that you may not be able to go in with any sort of like spy equipment. Uh, or any sort of like shady dual use equipment, right? That you need to come in, uh, you may, and because of biometrics and everything else, you may not be able to fool that stuff. So you, you come in as a regular Joe on your passport. And then once you're in country, you start developing the tools and the techniques and the assets that you need to accomplish the intelligence collection um, mm. with what you can find on the local economy. And so we were we were testing some of these things out, and yeah, apparently some of it made it up to you know SF command. Oh, really? Years later, yeah, because that 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 guy was saying in an interview, uh, talking, he specifically mentioned the naked man concept. That's fascinating. Like using just the resources there that are right. available to you right. to sort of unconventional warfare. Unconventional warfare, yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Have you ever, have you ever heard about? Uh, there's a guy who's been on here before, Ryan Tate. He uh, is a former Marine. He went over there and started uh, basically protecting the endangered animals over there, like especially the uh, the elephants and the rhinos that are being poached by the poachers out there, and they're they're carrying out like crazy missions to to uh, sort of like capture these poachers, really, and save the elephants. Yeah, and he's got they got a bunch of veterans that are over there that are working. I mean, I know there are a lot of like different like vet groups that have gone over there doing like counter poaching training and stuff mm. like that. I mean, I would be interested interested if there were like American veterans actually going over there and shooting poachers. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, here it is. It's called Vet Paw. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think they've gotten into any like serious firefights. Yeah, they're, they're they're more more likely they're training and working. You know, again with local partners to to enable the game wardens to do their job is probably what's happening. Right, right. But it it uh it's wild too because there's the the terrorist groups out in Africa. Oh yeah. Well, uh, what's the name of that terrorist group again in Northern Africa? The, well, there's a there's a bunch. There's uh, oh, the name of it is this Boko Haram, right Boko Haram in Nigeria. Yes. Yeah, like the Boko yeah. Haram that like took all those kids hostage in the schools yep. out there, and there's a lot of fucking crazy shit going on out there. And it, absolutely, I mean, if you're a uh, if you're a, a veteran dealing with some of the stuff that we talked about earlier, going out and doing some shit like this is is pretty close to like. <laughs> combat type situations when you're dealing with terrorists and fucking lions and tigers and poachers. West Africa is a fascinating, fascinating place. Um, 
you know, and we've, you know, the United States, you know, uh, special ops community has been over there for a long time. There's a lot of at-risk populations that could, you know, fall prey to uh, Islamic extremism. And we, we don't want that area to become, you know, the next Afghanistan, another mm-hmm. place, ungoverned area. Um, but there's, there's a tremendous opportunity for West Africa as well. I mean, their population is going to swell over the next couple of decades. Um, there's a real hope that they're going to develop into what we would call like first world nations that they're going to really yes that they're going to that west africa will become the new you know west europe for lack of a better term that they they'll follow their own their own trajectory right but that they're going to go through a rapid development process in west africa like what countries in particular i mean nigeria gabon Ghana, Senegal, um, Benin, like all of these countries on the in the West African coast, oh, um, wow. going going through this sort of like population explosion, but also economic explosion mm. uh, over the next couple of decades. I mean, it's probably going to become the most densely populated place on on Earth. Some people think. Well, China has dumped a shitload of money into Africa as far as like railways and roads, and like they're dumping so much money into Africa. They it's are kind of bizarre. They are. It'll 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 be interesting to see if it pays dividends for them you know as china is starting to um, learn what we have learned that you know there is a cost of trying to run a uh i don't want to use the word empire but let's just say maintaining global influence is expensive and it's costly in in many different ways Mm. um and we'll, we'll see how they do there it's interesting, you know, trying to figure out what their what their global chess game is with that dumping all that money to there. I think there was they even paid for an embassy or some sort of government building there that they found like spy equipment in. Could be. I mean that they for them it's it's a, they're looking forward and they want to secure up um arable land, uh natural resources. Yeah. They want to they want to position themselves for, you know, this century and the next century. And they're the ones that are responsible for the poaching, too, because they're the ones yes. that are they're buying up all the ivory mm-hmm. that yep. is being. And, and these people, these poor fucking people in Africa that they, they they can either be poachers and fucking feed their family. Right. Or they can be park rangers and barely be able to afford anything. Yeah, it's, it's sad. It's a hard fucking thing to deal with. Yeah, it's a sad Morally. situation. And these guys, Ryan, and he's, he explained to me how they, they've gone through operations where they've like tracked down poachers and fucking pulled them out of their bedrooms at night while they're sleeping. Really? Yeah. Well, their wives are sleeping next to them. They don't even wake up. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I wish these countries luck in, in those endeavors because, I mean, I'm, I'm afraid that, you know, in my lifetime, we won't have elephants or rhinoceroses anymore. I did. Did you hear about there's a country uh, on like Northwest Africa that is like one of the biggest cocaine importers in the world. Like these guys, the the actual government, one of the heads of government, like the main, I forget. What, yeah, so. He was like the general or something. You're, you're probably talking about Morocco and Algeria, but. Um, zoom in, zoom in to the top left of Africa. Oh, you can't zoom in. And okay. you yeah, know, right around there, Mali is very interesting too because of the uh, in the Sahel that like packed um, desert earth uh, lends itself to like kind of landing an airplane wherever the fuck you want. So you can fly those cocaine airplanes um, from Colombia, from South America, and just like land at a desert improvised desert mm-hmm. airstrip and right. uh, offload drugs, and then and then they can continue on to uh, Europe. Yeah, this guy, the guy I believe I'm referring to, he was like the head of the fucking Navy of that country. 
And like he was, he was asked about this, and he completely denied it. And then they later found out that he was the one in charge of all the imports. Yeah, like that's, he that's, was the one protecting yeah, all the imports. Yeah, of course. Because the country, I mean, it's it goes, it comes back to the countries that are the most impoverished or that are going through the suffering the hardest. They're the ones that are the most susceptible to corruption. There was a. Uh, Probably the most prolific pirate in Somalia in modern history was this dude named Afwene, Afwene, uh, which means big mouth. And uh, he, uh, his racket, you've got to respect the game. He was the biggest pirate in, uh, in, in, in Somalia, but he was also taking money from the UN to run counter piracy operations. Guinea Bissau, that's the company. Or that's the company. That's the fucking country. Oh, okay. That's, uh, that's West Africa. Yeah. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. The pirate. Yeah. So yeah, this guy was he, he was basically playing firefighter and arsonist. He was a, he was a pirate running all these piracy operations, but also taking money from the UN to run counter piracy operations. Oh, Corner of the market, man. Uh, yeah. Uh, he, they Sounds caught like my they, lawyer. They caught him. I think it was the Belgians arrested him. What they did, they did a sting where they lured him into Belgium. They said they want to make a um, a documentary about him. And when he showed up in the airport, the authorities arrested him. Really? Yeah. What's on the radar for you, like in the coming year? Like, what plans do you have as far as like your reporting in the future? And like, do you have any like big stories, big podcasts? Like, yeah, man, big, I, definitely. I mean, I think twenty twenty three is going to be a good year. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, I've started a uh, a national security news website. I got back into that um, with uh, another journalist named Sean Naylor, national security journalist. Wrote a book about the history of JSOC. Uh, it's called the high side. Um, so we're on there now we're, we're working on stories for it. Um, I, I don't want to tease too much and, and get people disappointed, but I, I mean, there's some pretty big like operation, uh, past operations, you know, we're working on some stories about that. Um, I texted Dimitri when I was trying to buy your, when I was trying to get your book. And I, I I searched your name on Apple Books, and there was like fifty fucking books that you wrote. No, no, I, I wrote four novels. Oh, okay, years ago. There's some other Jack Murphy's, maybe. There, there is. There's a there's so there's a quote unquote masculinity expert who uses my name. Oh, really? Yeah. His his real name is John Goldman. He uses the name Jack Murphy, and um, yeah, he's uh, he's a curious cat. He's a masculinity a masculinity expert. Expert. Yes, and he had a whole he had a whole um. A whole scandal like a year ago oh really yeah yeah i want to see what this guy looks like austin yeah so (laughs) yeah jack jack murphy um blew up on this girl on a podcast and was like telling her to go fuck herself and so then like all this stuff started leaking out about him you know the gay porn and oh really putting putting things up his coal shoot uh yeah so how did this stuff come out Listen, I I wasn't a part of all of that. I just got I just got the nasty grams. This is him. Yeah, I just got I got emails from people who are looking for him, and uh, they were sending me emails, and they were like, "I'm gonna fuck your whore wife, Jack Murphy, you <laughs> cuck." And I'm like, "You got the wrong Jack Murphy. Sorry, sorry, buddy. This it, guy's name isn't really Jack Murphy. Why the fuck did he steal your name? What a dick." Yeah, well, I mean, his real name is John Goldman. I'll leave people to speculate why he wouldn't want his audience to know that his last name is Goldman. You mm. can roll that one around on your right. own. <laughs> so he's kind of like an old school. He's kind of like in the same realm as Andrew Tate. Bro, I, I don't know. I don't get it. I heard. What What do you think about the Andrew Tate thing? Him getting busted in a 
what was the country he got busted Romania. in? Romania. Romania. I heard I heard from uh, one of my buddies that he, one of my friends who thinks everything's a psyop. He thinks that that was uh, an intelligence operation. Why? Because uh, this was this was his reasoning. I'm going to try to regurgitate this as accurately as I possibly can. But he thinks that China wanted him to be arrested. So China somehow did a deal with Romania to get him arrested, to either arrest him or kill him, to put him away so he could not keep growing his cult following and spreading this message of masculinity because China doesn't want the message of masculinity in America. China wants American children to be stupid and weak and scrolling on TikTok all day, not trying to be men like Andrew Tate. Wow. That was his theory. Wow. Okay. Uh I mean, yes, yeah, it remind that reminds me of like John McAfee, the yeah, yeah, got going off the rails. Like the CIA is trying to steal my penis when I sleep. You know that kind is that of, what he said? No, he didn't say that. But I mean, he he was he was like thought like they're coming to get me and all this crazy stuff. He did say like uh, not long before he, he died that if I die, I didn't kill myself. <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of these people have like delusions of grandeur. That's uh that John McAfee story is an interesting story. Yeah, it is. <laughs> And oh, Jack Murphy. That's not your Instagram fake, account, though. The fake Jack Murphy. <laughs> Look, Jack, this Jack Murphy, John Goldman, he should have to shave his beard and send it to me in a small box. Yeah, that beard's a little, a little. He little should be ridiculous. denied my name. <laughs> denied. <laughs> That's awesome, man. We'll tell the the people that are listening and or watching where they can find your books, where they can find the podcast. Oh, there's your Twitter. Yeah, that's where you can find all my shit posting on Twitter at, uh, at Jack Murphy RGR. Uh, you know the book Murphy's Law. That's on Amazon. My novels are on Amazon. Uh, I write for a website connectingvets.com. Uh, I produce podcasts for Stars and Stripes uh, called Military Matters. Um, again, the high side is a news uh, site. I'm I'm in the process of standing up with Sean. And then the podcast is uh, The Team House. The Team House is on YouTube. It's on wherever you go to find podcasts. And we're live every Friday night, 8 p.m. And what is the name? What does the name come from, Team House? It's uh, The Team House is uh, it's just where you know a special forces team operates out of. It would be called The Team House. Oh, okay. And that's sort of the vibe we go through, go for in the in the show is that the, the feeling is that, you know, like you're at a bar with like some old, you know, veteran, you know, knocking back a few scotches and he's telling you some mm -hmm. stories about his career. And who is the guy that you do the show with? David Park. David Park. Yeah, Dave. Uh, Dave has a very eclectic background. Uh, he was in the Marines. He was a Navy diver. He was a Army Ranger. Um, he's done all kinds of cool stuff in life, actually. That's amazing. Fantastic podcast. Highly recommended. Uh, I'll link it below. Awesome. And, Thank you. Uh, thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely, man. We got to do it again for yeah. sure. Yeah, let me know. All right. Goodbye, world.